Welcome to part six of the spirituality series with Herb Kay. God as I don't understand, step two and three. The spirituality series is a fundraiser for the Mary and Joseph Retreat Center. 100% of all donations go directly to the center. Donations can be made through the Mary and Joseph Retreat Center website and details for that will be in the chat. The spirituality series is being recorded and is available on Herb K's YouTube channel. Thank you so much for your participation today and enjoy the web, the workshop. Hi everybody, it's nice to see you all via Zoom here and um, a special hi to Herb. Um, again, we are so blessed to have Herb offering a Zoom retreat on a Saturday morning. And um, we're delighted that he's donating the proceeds of these Zoom gatherings to the retreat center as we navigate this difficult time. I've only known Herb for a short while, but I have found him to be generous, compassionate, and very wise. He's been connected to Mary and Joseph Retreat Center for many years, and he's truly part of our family. His 12-step and centering prayer groups have been extremely popular at the retreat center for decades. And now, since the start of the pandemic, he's moved these popular offerings to Zoom. Herb's journey includes seven years in Claritian Seminary, a graduate education in psychology, 40 years in human resources consulting, certification as a spiritual director, 37 years of active participation in a 12-step fellowship, and the publication of three books on spiritual awakening. So please welcome Herb, and Herb again, thank you so much from my heart. And we're so glad to have you here again today. Well, thanks very much, uh, Christine. And as you know, it was through the retreat center that my family became connected to recovery. And so uh, it, it, the retreat center has a very special place, not only in my heart, but in my whole family's heart. So thank you so much for the support that you give to the 12-step work in general and uh, my work uh, specifically, so thanks very much. My wife actually went to the retreat center in uh, 1983 because she was having problems with her drinking problem and uh, she was having a lot of trouble with my drinking problem. And she was looking, being Irish Catholic for some type of a spiritual solution. And that's when she met one of the good nuns who knew uh, quite a bit about 12-step, even though she wasn't in a 12-step program, and that began our journey in 1984. February, actually, this month is my anniversary. Um, so the retreat center, of course, has been very challenged given the pandemic issue. They've had to close any physical meetings, so uh, I'm doing these two series, the spiritual ser spirituality series, which is this one, and then the Pathway to Freedom series, which is the one next week, uh, as fundraisers. <clears throat> they receive 100% of the income read from the registration. <clears throat> and they provide the support for us in terms of administration <clears throat> of the 
registration and the Zoom management. So you might be wondering about, did I say I'm Herb, I'm an alcoholic? I probably did it. <laughs> Thank you so much again, Christine. Um, I was thinking as you, uh, Rainey, were announcing and uh, also Christine, the events coming up and people might be wondering since they have received the announcements from my constant contact distribution that I'm doing a workshop today. That's why you're here on steps two and three. But in February next week, I'm doing a workshop on step two. Herb, isn't that somewhat redundant? The answer is no, no. Today I'm going to talk about the relationship, the purpose of steps two and three. Some of the essence of each, but primarily the overview, the relationship, the connection, because it's the foundation of 12-step spirituality. It's the foundation of the journey in seeking power. And uh, next week, Saturday, when I do the step two review, at least by my standards, it'll be a, a bit of a deeper dive, much more a literal uh, review of chapter four from the big book. And in March, when I do step three, it will be, again, a much deeper dive, I believe, into step three and a more literal translation of the suggestions and my process and my experience with step three um, from the big book. So at least my intention is that they will be qualitatively different uh, in terms of the, both the information and the experience. We'll see how that turns out. Christine mentioned uh, uh, centering prayer. The retreat center is not a 12-step organization. It's an ecumenical organization. And what that means is y'all come. Anybody who has an interest in spirituality, both presenting it and listening to it, no matter what the tradition or no tradition at all, is welcome to come there. Sometimes they sponsor things and sometimes they merely rent out space to people. And uh, so we have uh, Buddhists and Hindus and uh, just anybody, literally, new age. But they've been particularly supportive of the 12-step community. And so there's a variety of 12-step meetings there primarily AA and Al-Anon, but then again, anybody who wants to rent space is welcome to do that. And it's just a gracious eight acre environment at the top of Palos Verdes, which in itself is a peninsula and just a slice of paradise. So <laughs> anyway, that's my little commercial for you. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to take a look at steps two and three, each of them individually and both of them together. Um, anybody who's been exposed to me and how I present, it's pretty informal in one way, at least as I perceive it, in that it's very spontaneous. I don't have a script. I don't have a canned pitch. I don't have a presentation. I have a lot of information and a lot of experience. And because I've been given the opportunity of sharing it 
for over 25 years, I have a lot of competency in communicating it. And that's really my goal is uh, to communicate it, uh, to help. The bullseye target of my life today is how can I help people connect to reality in order to reduce their suffering. Because I suffered a lot and I didn't know that I didn't know and I couldn't see that I didn't see and I didn't know that until I did. And I did the variety of things that was just referred to in Christine's reading of my bio, just a summary Reader's Digest version, a journey of seeking. What I didn't know is I took pride in the journey of seeking. I was a seeker and I wore it like a badge. What I didn't realize is I wasn't a finder. Even when I came into one of the 12-step fellowships, 1984, in February or March. I say it that way because alcohol was removed from me without my request or permission or actually any action on my part, just a willingness. A willingness to support my wife's recovery. She was in a hospital program. They asked me to stop drinking to support her. That was February 20th. I said I would. That was February 21st was my very first day without alcohol. And I have not had a drink nor an inclination to drink since then. I didn't go to AA probably for another oh two months, probably April of that year. I went to meetings every day because I got a sponsor who asked me to do that and I was willing to do that. I got a big book and I read it because my sponsor asked me to do that and I was willing to do that. I called him every day because my sponsor asked me to do that and I was willing to do that. You see, I was willing and that's the key. Of course, it's the key to step two, isn't it? This morning I reread step three from the 12 and 12. And lo and behold, it reminded me that willingness is actually applying the key to the door, which was an interesting metaphor that Bill was consistent with. He said, willingness is the cornerstone in step two. Willingness is the key that opens the door. But step three is our taking the key to put it in the door, to turn the lock, to open the door. That's a great way for us to start because it shows you the individual components. A decision for a concept in step two. And a decision to take action in step three. A very minor action, prayer, by the standards of, in fact, step four, which requires a lot of effort and diligence and consistency, a lot of thought and reflection, a lot of acceptance and a lot of embarrassment and a lot of suffering in itself, the suffering of the truth and the realization and the embarrassment that you had been living a lie. In step four, 
So by relative measure, step three is rather soft touch action, but it's a prayer, a public witness to our commitment to do steps four through nine. It's a process for me. As I look back over my shoulder at my journey, I said I had a sponsor. I called him every day. I went to a meeting every day. I had a big book and he said, read it. And I did. He said, work the steps. And I did. But he didn't tell me how to do that. I didn't know that he needed to because I'm reasonably intelligent, fairly well educated. I read English. The book is in English. I was wrong. But he didn't know and I didn't know that he didn't know. I finished those steps in the first year, 1984, of my sobriety on, on my own, in my own judgment, I finished step nine, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, a very sorry nine step, but I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't know the harm that I had caused, I didn't change my behavior, and I didn't repair the damage, but I didn't see any of that. As the result of finishing those 12 steps in the first year of recovery, nothing happened. I did not change. Again, I did not know that change was necessary. I did not know that change was possible. And I certainly didn't know what to do in order to change. I, I, I didn't intend to give such a uh, resounding uh, echo of the message, but I hope you're hearing it. I didn't know and I couldn't see, but I was willing to take the actions that somebody gave me directions to get, to do. And that for me is the simplicity of this process. And the key to steps two and three. A willingness to take actions that we don't know are correct, we don't feel that they're adequate, and we really don't want to do. Step one is just a reflection and then an experience. The step itself says admit. Page 30 in the big book has a much more demanding criteria of step one. He says, we need to concede to our innermost self. The delusion that we are like other people has to be smashed. Woo. The delusion. I believe a lie. That we are like other people, normal. Has to be smashed. This is not a gentle program in that sense. The approach to it and the effort from us is gentle. My favorite mm, image or metaphor is to lean gently into it. Just lean gently into it, because that's my experience. At least by my standards, gentle is leaning into it. Now, I'm pretty intense. You've already got a sense of that in terms of the way I present. My sponsor 
came to one of my first presentations. He said, Herb, I came to you for a drink of water. I didn't realize I was going to be blasted by a fire hose. I mean, that's just the way I, uh, it comes from me. I try to measure it so that, in fact, you can hear it, you can absorb it, and it will have an impact on you. You might want to make some notes. It is recorded. It will be on YouTube. It will be edited. It will be available. So you can re-listen to it if, in fact, that would serve your purpose. In 1988, four years sober, I heard a man share in a meeting for five minutes. He shared differently. What he said may have been said in any one of the meetings I had gone to on a daily basis, but I had never heard it. He talked about the big book as a textbook. He talked about getting a step guide to help him through the steps. one step at a time, one page at a time, a literal and fundamental translation of the big book. He called him a step guide, he called him a big book mechanic, a step mechanic. Words that I had never heard before, words that were incredibly deep and incredibly wise, but the most important part of what I experienced with him was the tone that he shared with the tone in his voice resonated with me in a way that no other teacher had. I had been exposed to many, many, many brilliant, brilliant, knowledgeable, wise people throughout my journey of being seven years in a monastery and five years studying psychology and a graduate education in philosophy and theology and psychology and all the self-help stuff that we did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But I had never had the experience of resonating with a person as I did with this man. And my, my needle was like the magnet po pointing north. I asked him to help me and he said he would. He said, but Herb, wow, <clears throat> you have an awful lot of information but you have very little transformation. And I knew that he knew something that I didn't know. And that if I connected with him, I would soon have knowledge and an experience and I would begin to know. And that changed my life. Going through the steps with the step guide, he never became my sponsor. He never actually became my friend. We're friendly. I talked to him once a year. but he was a step guide, like a project manager. And I had a spiritual awakening. I'm gonna talk about some of the things I'm talking about now in a little more depth as we go through my intended outline and script for our discussion today. Okay, oh well, look at that, already a misfire there. All right, well, golly, I, I, I had forgotten that we normally start with prayer. 
So let's begin with that serenity prayer. You're all on mute. I encourage you to pray out loud if you're going to pray, but you're welcome to pray just quietly to yourself or to not pray at all because you may have come here as uh, ambivalent to God, the word, or spirituality, the concept, and or you may even have some total resistance as an agnostic or an atheist. Chapter four was built for you in the big book, We Agnostics. So what I'm asking for is for you to have a positive attitude toward what it is we're going to do. I'm not asking you to agree with anything I say. I am asking you to hear it and to reflect on it. The serenity prayer is the prayer of 2020, isn't it? What can I influence? What can't I influence? And I really need wisdom to navigate this pandemic and the world it has created. What can I influence? What is reality? What power do I have? What power don't I have? Please join me. God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. That's what I want. Wisdom. Wisdom isn't knowledge. It's much broader than that. Wisdom is knowledge that has been wordsmithed, blacksmithed, hammered out in real life based on my making mistakes and correcting them. Wisdom comes from suffering, the suffering of failure and the suffering of the effort to correct the failure. And then the joy of, in fact, finding your way, wisdom. I've mentioned 12-step spirituality. It's kind of a challenging term. 12 steps, no, that's about alcohol. What do you mean 12-step spirituality? Well, the 12 steps are not about alcohol, actually. That's why it's only treated in the first half of the first step. Bill is very clear. It's a symbol of our problem. It's a symptom of our problem, but alcohol, or translate for all of you who, some of you don't have alcohol, but you do have an addiction. And if you don't have any addiction, you have some sense of unmanageability because you're a human being. 12-step spirituality. In the big book, it suggests, has three moving parts. Trust God. Well, wow, that can be quite challenging. That's why I named this discussion, God is I don't understand it. A wonderful, all-inclusive embrace of all people and all traditions and people with no traditions at all because it's really up to the individual. The blessing of the 12-step methodology is there's no theology, there's no dogma, there's no beliefs. You don't have to do anything. 
You don't have to think anything. You don't have to feel anything. But there are some suggestions for action. Certainly to clean house. Inventory is the biggest component because we have obstacles in us that are impediments to the flow. I'm going to use that metaphor a lot today. It's my current consciousness of reality. It's my current consciousness of reality with a capital R. It's my current consciousness of consciousness itself. Flow with a capital F. And our humanity creates obstacles in us to the flow of reality around us and through us. We can use the metaphor of darkness and light. Bill talks about the sunlight of the spirit underlying the totality of things. What a mystical, sophisticated, poetic image. The sunlight of the spirit underlying the totality of things. Next week, I'll be talking about transcendence and imminence. $100 words that really capture what Bill was talking about. He came from that mystical perspective. The sunlight, however, is blocked by the darkness in us. That darkness comes because of the clouds, the obstacles, the impediments in us from our human nature. Whether it's a biolog biological nature or a psychological nature or the human nature, they create the clouds in us that block the sunlight and steps four through nine, identify what the obstacles are, analyze their true nature, deconstructs them and removes them so that the light can shine in us, to us, and eventually then through us. I consider myself a lantern. I'm not the light, I'm the lantern. People who get in trouble get confused there. As leaders in the development of any spirituality, they begin to have the delusion that they're the light. Now, I'm the finger pointing to the light. I'm the lantern through which the light shines on the path that I walk so that others can walk that path in the light of my experience and have their own experience. I'm not here to have you be, what do they call that, mini herbs? No, that's not my goal at all. My goal is to help you improve and enlarge your own life, your own identity, your own truth, your own true self. This is our way of life. One of my good friends who had 50 years of sobriety when he died said, Herb, there's only two sides to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was brilliant. These are the kind of wisdom things that I embrace and try to pass on. There's only two sides to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the spiritual side and the outside. Lots of people talk about the spiritual side of AA. I understand what they're saying, but they don't. 
Lots of people say lots of things without much thought because it sounds good or they heard it in a meeting or they read it in a book and it sounds good. They just haven't thought it through. This man said, there's only two sides to the 12 step program, the spiritual side and the outside because it's all spiritual. I, I suggest a methodology for us today as I do in any workshop or presentation that I do because it was my experience that cracked me open in 1984. The hospital said, what is your history with alcohol? It wasn't a general autobiography. If you have any doubt about your addiction, whether or not you have one, I suggest you do a autobiography in bullet points of your actual history with regard to that particular substance and or behavior. As you know, addiction has, at least in current terminology among the professionals, two primary words. <clears throat> One is substance and the other is process. Substance addiction, food, alcohol, and drugs. Process addiction, everything else. So what's my history? I get some information from that. I also get some information from outside, perhaps with lectures or reading or meetings. I get some information. I, I, I got the information of the genetic transfer of addiction, <clears throat> alcoholism specifically. My father was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic. His father was alcoholic. In the same way, we're all white, those four or five generations, and we're all bald, those four or five generations, we're all alcoholic, those four or five generations. I'm white and bald, and it's not my fault, it's my genetics. I'm an alcoholic, it's not my fault, it's my genetics, but it is my responsibility. As I was writing this out and then reading this out, the, pu the puzzle pieces came together for the very first time. I was 43 years old and I've mentioned to you I had an extensive reflective background. I was seven years in the monastery. I don't believe I told you it, it was silent. Seven years of silence from ages 17 to 24. You do a lot of thinking. And yet I never, never, never encountered the truth. Now, I was young and immature, of course. Even when I left, however, doing all the graduate work I did and all the human development that I did, coming into a 12-step fellowship at age 43, I still didn't know the truth. I saw drama in my life, 502s, that's drunk driving arrests and hospitalizations for drunk driving and blackouts and a lot of embarrassing moments. And I said, that's what makes me an alcoholic. Then I didn't know that I didn't know and my sponsor never uh, uh, helped me get clear on that, but it was good enough step one. to have me commit to going to the meetings and to get a sponsor and to take direction. And then I had an experience. Well, what do I do now? 
and I tried harder. And of course that didn't work, but this is the dynamic that I'll be using today, asking you to ask yourself questions. There's no right answers to the questions. They're just questions that will confront you. Sometimes they'll be puzzling. You won't actually really know how to answer it. Sometimes they'll be very irritating because they're very confrontational. They're meant to be irritating. To wake us up these questions. To confront us with reality. To embarrass us because of our delusions that we finally have a crack in to see the light and the lie. The truth is we're in jail. That's what Bill says. We're in jail. He calls it the bondage of self. If we're in our addiction, we're in the bondage of addiction. That's the first half of the first step. That's just pathetic Herbie there, not knowing that he doesn't know and begins to understand that he has an alcohol problem. Well, what do I do now? I've tried to quit and I have quit. 30 days in January, 40 days in Lent, 90 days in a self-help program very successfully quitting for those time periods without any problem at all. But I always started again. What's that about? This man said to me, and I showed you my physical illustration of that when I put my arms around my head and said, you have a lot of information. And then I put my arms around my heart and he said, but you have no transformation. I didn't know that I didn't know. I knew he had something that he was attempting to tell me that was the truth, but I couldn't really decode it. And he quoted Einstein, the consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. Again, a wisdom saying such succinct brilliance. I cannot fix my mind with my mind because my mind has a defect in it. I don't know it has a defect in it because I'm thinking about my mind with my mind. And it produces a result that has a defect embedded in it because of the defect of its origin. The consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. I need a new consciousness, he said to me. To the extent that you hold on to your old ideas, to the extent that you hold on to your old experience, you're prevented from having any new experience. This is so relevant today as you and I are here to talk about, think about, feel, come to grips with, what is it that you believe about God or power other than yourself or higher power synonyms that Bill gives us? And he gave us the set-aside prayer, this man. It's not an official prayer. It has changed, and I apply it differently in different circumstances with different words. Those of you who know, I sometimes use brokenness, and I sometimes use spiritual path. 
today I'm using both because this invitation is to everybody. Not, any, not, not just people who are, have some addiction, not just people who are in a 12-step program, but all human beings' brokenness, all people who want a spiritual awakening through any method at all, a spiritual path. And I can be willing to have an open mind and I can be willing to have an open heart. I just can't do it. So I'm inviting the spirit, whatever that means, the universe, the force, the source, a power other than myself to enter into my very being and bring a crowbar so that my mind can be opened and my heart can be opened and my soul can be opened and all can be fed and healed. Out loud to yourself or not at all. These are your decisions. You're on mute. I'm inviting you to join me with at least a positive affirmation of a willingness to have an open mind and heart. God, please set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path in you. For an open mind and a new experience with myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path. And especially you. You've seen this perhaps in a picture of the Sistine Chapel, or maybe you've even been in Rome and looked up at the work of Michelangelo. He spent years on his back painting that ceiling, depicting creation from the Bible. Back in the 13th or 14th century, I'm not even sure when it was, but it was a long time ago. And the hand on the right pointing Across or down is the hand of God, metaphorically, in creation, reaching out to the earth. Genesis, the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scripture, God created humans from the earth, from the clay. God created them. Male and female, God created them in God's image and likeness. A passage that I revisited as I was thinking about our discussion. It's so powerful. Some shepherd on a hill, perhaps 5,000 years ago, thinking about what we're thinking about today, and then writing this poetry. God created humans from the dirt. The original language in which the scripture was written, dirt is Adam, Adama. It's not the first name of the first man. <laughs> oh, it's so funny when you really get to origins. Adam, Adama is the language that means earth or clay or dirt. God created humans out of the earth. God created them in God's image and likeness. I wonder what that means. And I have wondered for three decades. And I have obviously some thoughts about it. 
next week. God created them in God's image and likeness. God created them male and female. That has huge implications. Notice the limp wrist of the human saying, gosh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Can I really touch this? Look at, there's a, there's a, there's a space in between. They're not touching. I don't know what the interpretation is, but I think that's where the mystery happens. I looked up the word alchemy because it's a wonderful word for transformation. Alchemy, the phony chemistry proposing to transmute metal into gold. This is in the Middle Ages. The snake oil salesmen have always existed and gullible people have always existed. People who are looking for some type of a miraculous road to fame and wealth. And these people promise to turn iron ore into gold with this elixir that they had and people would buy it because the guy was really slick and a really good salesman. The elixir of life was the other definition. So alchemy is a term used for a phony science of transforming iron ore into gold, but I use it here for a real experience of turning self-centeredness into other-centeredness, turning my suffering into joy, turning my narcissism into becoming a decent human being, turning my darkness into light, alchemy. This 12-step process produces that kind of transformation that was promised. I was a Neanderthal, thinking I was a Renaissance man. As a result of the transformation experience, the spiritual awakening that is promised in step 12, listen to it, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. I start all my work with individuals and with groups with that now. I start with the 12th step because it's the vision proposition. It's the value proposition. It's the vision statement. It's the purpose. It's the mission a spiritual awakening. Well, what does that mean? We'll see. What does that mean? It means I was asleep dreaming that I was awake. I'm quoting a Russian philosopher, Gurdjieff. All human beings are asleep dreaming that they're awake and their job is to become awake to the fact that they were asleep and are inclined to fall asleep. Is God necessary? Wow. That's what we're looking at today. What is it and is it necessary? Ask yourself a question here, now. Pause in the spirit of the set aside. Pause in the confrontation that I'm about to challenge you with. Please commit to an open mind and an open heart. At least hold it 
in neutrality. I'm going to ask you two questions. I was 10 years sober and had two previous spiritual awakenings when the man approached me with the set aside prayer and then these two questions. And what I discovered was that my traditional concept from my monastic training and all my theological exposure and 10 years in a 12-step program with two prior spiritual awakenings, with all of that, my concept of God was the very impediment to my relationship with the mystery. I'm going to say it again. My concept of God at 10 years of sober was the very impediment, the block for me to have an authentic relationship with a power other than myself. He asked me two questions. Today, Herb, what do you actually believe about God or higher power? Well, that was a pretty easy task for me. With my background, I went home. I spent a week thinking about it, writing about it. I brought it back to him after a week, and I read it to him. And he goes, wow, Herb. <laughs> that is just beautiful and, and, and theologically very solid. Well, I... Yes, of course, that was my training. That was my background. I'd like you to write out your current belief. I didn't say your current understanding. I didn't say your what you've read. I didn't say what your parents taught you or your tradition taught you or your sponsor expects from you or the big book says. I didn't say that. I said today, listening right here, right now, February 6th, what is it that you actually believe? Of course, it's important to know what belief means. Belief means that it's an acceptance. It's the system that you have in you concerning your understanding of feelings about thoughts of God or higher power or a power other than yourself. What is it for you actually today? I'm not going to ask you to read it. I'm not going to ask you to read it to anybody else. You can be radically and rigorously honest with yourself, transparent, please. And if you don't know, you don't know. And if you have resistance, you have resistance. And if you have actually defiance and you actually believe that there is no reality such as I'm describing, that's what you say, please, honest with yourself and write it out. What is it that you actually believe? There's no right or wrong answer. There's just your answer. But write it out. A word, a phrase, a sentence, a paragraph, whatever it is. Ambivalent or vague as it might be.
in Appendix 2 in the back of the book, if you haven't read that recently or at all, it's referenced in Chapter 4 <clears throat> a couple times. I really recommend that you read it sometime, not now, not during our time together, but it says an unsuspected inner resource. How beautiful. Unsuspected. I don't know that this is deep inside me. Inner as part of my humanity, as part of my nature, as part of my very existence. The spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, as I quoted earlier. Unsuspected inner resource. A power other than myself, a resource in me that's available to me. Really? Here's the second question. <clears throat> now, this man gave me a week in between to reflect on it, to write it. And then when I read it, he gave me this next question and gave me a week to read and reflect, excuse me, to, to reflect and to write it. I asked you, what is you actually believe? The second question is, how do you behave in light of what you believe you believe? That was his statement, and he wasn't stuttering. Believe that you believe. He knew that I had some misconception, some delusion, some illusion, and I didn't know that I didn't know, or at least he suspected that, because it's most everybody's experience. And I went home and I was embarrassed in my own presence, writing out how I behave 10 years sober, how I behave, having had two spiritual awakenings that literally changed, radically changed my life and my behavior. There's, there's, I mean, I could give you hours of evidence of the visibility and the radicalness of the change. I'm not going to. But it was very clear to me. It was clear to my family. And yet, 10 years sober, I was not behaving in harmony with what my belief was. And I discovered that I was an agnostic, doubting the power of God, doubting the relevance of God. The very relevance. And so I reworked the steps in my 10th year of sobriety with this man. And I, for the very first time, established an authentic relationship with power. I had gone through the steps three times before that, twice having a spiritual awakening. As I mentioned, that first year was nothing. The second and the third time, I had a profound spiritual awakening without having any experience with steps two and three. So the steps work even though you have a inadequate concept by at least my standards today of a power other than ourself. The balance of the steps, of course, remove the obstacles in us 
to myself, the obstacles in us, to my relationship with others, and then I live our way of life, the program of recovery, your steps one through nine, the program of living are steps 10, 11, and 12, the best kept secret in the rooms, at least by my exposure and experience. What does it mean recovered? What does it mean not cured? What does it mean daily reprieve? What does it mean unmanageability? What does it mean our way of living? What does it mean to improve my conscious contact? What does it mean to enlarge my conscious contact? These are all conversations that we'll have over the time of the path to freedom, which is a monthly journey through each of the steps, defining all of those terms and the process to have an experience with them. In my very first journey through the steps, I did have an, a spiritual awakening, as I mentioned. It was a change in the way I thought and felt and behaved. It's not a mystical moment in the sense of classic mysticism. Bill had one, a mystical experience, and you read it on page 14 in the big book. He was second day, third day. He was third day hospital, hospitalized. He had worked the steps on his second day in the hospital, worked the steps of the Oxford group. And he had a mountaintop experience on that third day. The room filled with light. He was overwhelmed with the sense of the presence of God. He felt like he'd been taken to the top of a tall mountain and a clean wind blew through him and he was completely convinced at the end of that 20 minute experience that he was permanently removed from alcohol and that his life's mission was to carry that message of finding power to deal effectively with his alcoholism well that's just not my experience as i've taken some words and time to explain today, a process that took over 20 years for me. It took me five years to begin to have a step one experience. The first five years were based on drama. Then I understood at five years and experienced the allergy, doctor's opinion. Then three years later, the obsession, the problem of the mind. And then three years later, the spiritual malady, unmanageability, the problem of the soul, the problem of the will, the problem of the human spirit. And 10 years later, doing the steps again to, to confirm all of that. A process of waking up. Hear the term. It's not like instant, at least I don't wake up instantly in the morning. I woke up at six, I got up at 6.30 this morning. I lay there quietly kind of adjusting to the light and to being awake. And then I got up and I brewed the coffee and by 7.30, I was pretty awake, a process. But the spiritual awakening is done to us, not by us, uh, but not without us. 
I added that within the last five years. I used to just say, a change in the way we think and feel and behave done to us, not by us, recognizing the work of the Spirit and grace. But my goodness, I've done such an awful lot of work myself, leaning gently into the dimmer switch, pushing the dimmer switch up so that the light has more current, has more energy, has more electricity, has more power, and the lights get brighter and have for 37 years, one day at a time, one notch at a time, one little lumen of light with each positive action. And it's cooperation and collaboration. Bill says that at the end of the fifth step, a wonderful poetic phrase. I don't wanna mess it up because it's so brilliant. At the end of the fifth step are the promises of the fifth step. There are promises in each step. I'll look at the promises of the third step later on, but this is the promises of, of uh, the fifth step at the end. I'm not going to read them all, but the one I just alluded to. We are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. It doesn't get much better in terms of a metaphor, a mystical reference of a relationship, a vision of a relationship with the spirit. We feel we are on the broad highway, capital B, capital H, a synonym for a higher power, broad highway. Looking at that in creating my third book, the one on meditation, it came to me, oh, wow, the journey is the destination because there's no place to go. The journey is the destination because if there is this power, as Bill says on page 53, God is or God isn't, God is everything or God is nothing. There either is this reality or there isn't. And if there is, it's everything by its own nature. Not that we can understand that. We can mouth the terms, but I cannot understand that. I cannot comprehend that. It's like trying to put the ocean in a bucket. The bucket's too small. My bucket is too small. But I can lean against it. I cannot comprehend it. I cannot envelop it. This is pathetic, Herbie, still in jail. Here's the truth. There's no jail, no ceilings, no wall, no floor. There's just me, captured by my lies, captured by my delusions, captured by my story. And each of us needs to identify that we have a story and to dismantle it. The problem is that we have a deficiency in our body. Dr. Silkworth calls it an allergy. Bill calls the problem of the mind an obsession. And the Oxford group and Bill confirmed the problem and Carl Jung the problem of the human being is a problem of the will. 
Carl Jung said <clears throat> to Roland Hazard, you need to find a spiritual experience. Roland said, great, I'll go back to church. Carl Jung may have said something like, young man, you're not listening. I didn't say church or religion. I said, you need to find a spiritual experience. Fortunately, Roland did go back to church, the Episcopal Cathedral in New York, back in around 1932, <clears throat> and he found the Oxford Group, which had six steps for Christian conversion, and they were willing to embrace Roland Hazard because he was a man of good standing in their community, and they thought he might be a sphere of influence. So he applied those six steps to his alcohol problem and got free. Carl Jung later on wrote a letter to Bill Wilson in 1961 saying, alcoholics are uniquely spiritual people. They have a deep thirst or hunger. Please hear this. They have a deep thirst or hunger for the infinite. And they make a false attempt to fill it with the finite. He had a Latin phrase at the end of that letter, spiritus contra spiritum. The spirit with a capital S is the antidote to spirits with a small s. Human beings have this inherent yearning for a relationship with spirit, and unfortunately, they establish a relationship with spirits. Hear the play on the words. It's intended. Pascal said it the best. The whole in us is in the shape of God. The whole in us, which we fill with substance, addiction, food, alcohol, drugs, or we fill with process, pornography, relationships, anger, pride, self-esteem, power, None of it satisfies the depth of the whole that is in our soul. It's how we're built, a defect of our will. And that's the unmanageability. Sure, we're powerless over our addiction, but that's only a percentage of people. Bill really had a fabulous insight into human psychology and human theology. Our lives are unmanageable. What does that look like? Unmanageability. I have trouble with personal relationships. I am a, can't control my emotional nature. I am a prey to misery and depression. I can't make a living. I added that satisfies me because I'm a bottomless pit. There's not enough pleasure or power or recognition or money. or adulation. I have a feeling of uselessness. I am full of fear. I am unhappy. I can't seem to be of real help to other people. And the wee small voice in me added, Herb, nor do you care about other people 10 years sober. What do you mean? I wanted to be a missionary priest. That's what I dedicated seven years to. All about helping people in their soul. Then when I couldn't heal their soul, I thought, well, maybe I'll bring some relief to their emotions and I'll become a psychologist. And now I'm in a 12-step program and I sponsor people and I spend my time helping other people. 
And when I got quiet, the wee small voice got very loud and it said, Herb, you don't really care about people. You want to be recognized rather than actual help. You care more about what people think of you than actually reducing people's suffering. You see, I'd been given the set-aside prayer and I was awake enough to go through a process in which I was then asked those two questions. What do I believe and how do I behave? And it was on the foundation of a new experience with unmanageability. Read page 52. All I've done is taken that second paragraph and made it individual sentences in the present tense and in the personal pronoun. And I read it out loud and I was turned red. I was embarrassed in my own presence. Fortunately, I was working with a really good clinical psychologist at the time to straighten out some of the wrinkles in my family of origin development, and I was becoming confronted there with my own unredeemable narcissism by clinical standards, unredeemable, cannot be changed by therapy, cannot be changed by medication. And yet it's very clear to my clinical psychologist, who is also in the program, Dr. Alan Berger, that I've gone from a seven and a half on a scale of 10 to a two and a half. You never get fully restored, but you heal and become a more decent human being. Is God necessary? Well, that's the only explanation that I have for the changes in me. And that was confirmed by this psychologist. And it was confirmed by my spiritual director, who is not in a 12-step program, is a clinical psychologist, but was a monk at the same time I was a monk for the same period of time. He happened to be in the, at the monastery in, in Gethsemane, Kentucky, and his spiritual director for those six or seven years that he was there was Thomas Merton. That may not impress you but it certainly impresses me. Thomas Merton was a man of incredible stature, a prolific author, probably a prophet and a mystic. That was his teacher. And he said, Herb, you need to be aware of, conscious of, and concerned about your narcissism, but never let it get in the way of your ministry. How wise is that? And then he said, God writes straight with crooked lines. Quoting the scripture, of course. Watch for and be patient with and pay attention to and be accountable for and be transparent. All of my sponsors and step guides and therapists and spiritual directors have echoed that. But show up and do the work that you're invited to do anyway. So here we are at step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's a real mouthful. We're not gonna unpack it all in the depth that I would like to. That's why I have scheduled a separate conversation next week. 
to stay focused on step two. But ask yourself, what is it? For two years, I used that term as the term for my higher power. I had used many terms. I had used father, I had used teacher, I had used mentor, I had used coach, I had used guide. In the last couple of years, I've used the term mystery. This, my current concept is flow with a capital F. I keep changing it as I change. Is it healthy steps? This power other than ourself? Is it our higher self? Dr. Berger says the best in us manages the worst in us. The Buddhists talk about the human spirit, the true self. The psychologists talk about the true self versus the false self. What is it? The Holy Spirit, that's the basis, quite frankly, of the big books approach, although Bill doesn't use that Catholic terminology. A spirit other than ourself, of course. Step two is a decision about a concept. Step three is a decision about a relationship. They're quite different. I mean, dramatically different. At another time, I'll talk, not today, I'll talk about the overall approach to the steps, at least by my understanding and analysis. I mentioned that the human being is human because we have a mind that thinks and we have a will that decides. Those are the two things that make us human. Those are the two primary functions of our cortex. That I have a mind that thinks. No other sentient reality can self-reflect, can transcend themselves and watch themselves. No other sentient being, to the best of our knowledge, can do that. It's unique to human beings, the ability to know in a transcendent way. And the second is the ability to decide a voluntary, completely voluntary decision, a choice. No other sentient being has that. Step two is recognizing that, having a concept and making a decision about that concept. What is it? For me, what do I need? The qualities, the attributes, what do I need? These are not rhetorical questions. I'm asking you to ask yourself and then make notes. What is your heart saying? What is your gut saying? What is your head saying? All of them might be saying different things during this conversation that we're having, and I hope you're having one with me. What's he talking about? What's he mean? How does it apply to me? What's my experience with that? Is there an invitation here? These are the meditation questions that I use in my morning meditation. What am I hearing? What does it mean? What's my experience with that? 
How does this apply to me? Is there an invitation? My favorite question. Is there an invitation today special from the spirit, from the universe, from the power, from the flow? You see, this is a decision of faith. Bill Wilson says on page 45, lack of power is our dilemma. We need to find a power other than ourselves. Obviously, that's what this book is all about. Finding a power other than ourselves. Power is the key word here. Obviously, coming out of step one, where I have had an experience of not just the knowledge of my addiction, not just the knowledge of my unmanageability, but the actual experience. Oh, my God. We went from our head of knowledge to an experience, but we didn't do it overnight. At least I didn't. Ten years to have a full experience with step one. Ten more years to have a full and authentic experience with step two. May not be your experience. I'm just a slow learner. Fortunately, I'm a learner. I do embrace the experience. Bill says on page 47, willingness is the cornerstone. Willingness is the cornerstone. Willingness to believe. Willingness to accept. The cornerstone of an arch, a spiritual arch through which we walk to freedom. We're building a spiritual arch through which we'll walk to freedom. He's using this architectural analogy here for the very first time on page 47. He says, step two is the cornerstone. Well, in architectural terms, that's the first stone that you put on the foundation. Wow, I don't remember building a foundation. Did Bill ever refer to that? A little bit, but not as clearly as I am. Step one is the foundation, of course. We dug deeply in my workshops and my work with people. I spent three months on step one, a month on the allergy, a month on the obsession, a month on the unmanageability. So people get a clear understanding of what Bill's talking about, but a powerful personal experience with what their journey is. We become brain dead to the word powerless. So I try to find other words that might wake me up and wake you up. I use the word no choice. Allergy. When I start, I cannot stop. I have no choice. It's a biological mandate. Obsession. When I stop, I cannot stay stopped. No choice. On my own power, I always started again. It wasn't changing my mind. I wasn't conscious of being hijacked by uh, obsession. An obsession that took possession of me without my permission and without my consciousness. I'm not unpacking that today. I did that last month. Step one, hopefully an in-depth that will allow people to establish or broaden or deepen their own experience with powerless and no choice, unmanageability. On my own power, my will will always choose me. Bill says on page 43, we have no mental defense 
against the first drink. That's certainly about addiction, the first half of the first step. No mental defense. But what is many times overlooked, because Bill kind of hides it, it wasn't the structure that he intended in the big book to talk about unmanageability as part of the first step. He thought he was through with his discussion on the first step by the end of page 43. But by my standards, it was the end of the discussion of the first half of the first step about addiction, no mental defense. But after he talks about unmanageability on page 52 and pages 60 to 62, he ends on page 62. And, and I hope you can hear this and maybe spend a little time in meditation on this. The end of that second paragraph, he starts out at the top. Selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our trouble. That's unmanageability. That's the nature of unmanageability. That's the nature of the spiritual disease. That's the nature of the spiritual malady. That's the nature of human brokenness. Selfishness, self-centeredness. My will on its own power will always choose me. I will camouflage it to make me look good to myself and make me look good to you. And there's so much denial and self-deception that I, I'm, I'm lost in the fog. But I wake up when I do this work over a period of time like that dimmer switch going up a notch at a time with a little bit more light and a little bit more light and a little bit more light. A very slow process. I wonder what Bill meant when he says came to believe. I believe it's a slow process, that dimmer switch. It's certainly my experience. But here on page 62, he ends his discussion on unmanageability in the same way he ended the discussion previously on addiction on page 43. No effective mental defense. Here on page 62, he says, neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We're as powerless over our willpower as we are over our addiction, a.k.a. That is just lightning powerful. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. So Bill takes us through a process of trying to understand faith and trying to experience it. On page 47, he said willingness. And on page 53 now, he introduces us to faith. Toward the end of the page, he says, we are confronted with the question of faith after he asked us two questions. God is or God isn't. God is everything or God is nothing. What is your choice? You see, Bill asks us a series of questions on page 45, where and how are we going to find this power? On page 47, are you willing? Now on page 53, there's no wiggle room. It's black and white. God is or God isn't. It's a problem of the body. It's a problem of the mind. It's a problem of the will. We saw that in unmanageability and our addiction. We're confronted now with the question of faith. He asked us, God is or God isn't, what's your choice? 
There's no fallback position like there is on 47. Are you willing to believe if you don't believe? There's no fallback position on page 53. He's not asking us what we think or know. Faith is not knowledge. In fact, faith is the opposite of knowledge. Faith is not feeling. It's not a product of emotions. Emotions being biochemical reactions to our perceptions. Wow. Okay. Page 53 implies that faith then is a decision. God is or God isn't. What is your choice? Well, that's pretty empty, pretty thin, pretty invisible, pretty tenuous. There's no substance to it. There's no knowledge with it. There's no feeling to it. It's just a decision. Oh. But what's my option? In power, in, in step one, I actually had the experience that I don't have sufficient power on my own power. And so I'm in this conundrum, this catch-22. I am powerless, meaning no choice. And if there isn't a power that's available in the universe, I'm screwed. That's not in the big book. But it's implied. He said hopeless or doomed. Those are in the big book. This is faith. Simply put, a decision of my will, God is. Nothing changes. There's no certitude. There's no feeling. God is. Oh, then I accept that with my mind saying, that's a reasonable solution to the dilemma of my brokenness and my powerlessness. I will accept that because I don't really have an alternative. And that's my belief. That's a system of belief. If you look up the words faith and belief and trust in a dictionary, you will chase your tail. My dictionary said faith is belief and belief is trust and trust is faith. Well, that was not helpful. So I decided to take, apart, take it apart myself to try to figure out, so what is faith exactly? Wow, it's just a decision. But then when I accept it, that's my belief system. And then when I act as if it's true, that's my trust. I move my feet in the way I've accepted and the way I believed. The way, the decision that I made. That's why I asked you the question at the beginning. What do you believe and how do you behave? Your, your feet will tell you what you believe. Your feet will tell you what your principles are. Your, your feet will tell you what your intentions are. Your feet will tell you the truth. Your feet will confront you with objectivity, if you're willing to look at how you behave. That's who you are. How you behave is, if you're gossiping, you're a gossip. If you're robbing banks, you're a bank robber. You're not Robin Hood, you're bank robber. If you're flirting, you're unfaithful. Your feet, oh my God, I... I know that many of you just really don't like this or really like me at this point. It's so confrontational because there's no wiggle room. Your feet will tell you who you are. Your feet will tell you what you believe. Your feet will tell you what your 
intentions are. My head will lie to me. My heart will lie to me. My gut will lie to me. I've learned to rely on them more now that I'm more whole. I'm more holistic. I'm more in line. I'm more in alignment with. I'm more awake. But my feet hold me accountable. Step two, came to believe. You can hear the process, like that dimmer switch going up a notch at a time. A decision about my concept. At this point, I'd like you to, in light of what you've thought and what you've felt and what you've heard, to just jot down a word or two or three about what do you need? What do you want? the attributes and qualities of a higher power, a power other than yourself. What do you want? What do you need in the qualities or attributes of a power other than yourself? Gandhi said, your concept will change as you do. On page 55, Bill says, <clears throat> an answer to the question number four, uh, question asked on page 45. On 45, he says, where and how are we going to find this power? He gives us two paragraphs on page 55. Bill isn't redundant ever. So this is very intentional where he gives us two paragraphs that say the same thing with different words. We can clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, that's how. Encourages you to search diligently, that's how. Then if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. If you search diligently and think honestly within yourself, that's where. In the paragraph above, he said basically the same thing. We found the great reality, capital G, capital R, deep down within us. That's where. In the last analysis, it is only there that God can be found. We had to search fearlessly. That's how. Deep down within us, that's where. In the last analysis, after every prayer and writing and thinking and reading is done. It is only deep inside ourselves that God may be found, that this power may be found. Completely connecting to Appendix 2 where he said, and I quoted it earlier, an unsuspected inner resource. With this attitude, well, what attitude is that? Thinking honestly, searching diligently, searching fearlessly. That's the attitude. Here's the promise. You cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. Came to believe. Dimmer switch. Slow. Glacially slow for me. Ten years before I ever had an authentic experience 
with steps two and steps three and promises on page 57. God has come to all who have honestly sought when we promise one, when we drew near to God, God discloses God's self to us. Notice the conditions. God has come when we honestly seek. God gets close and discloses God's self when we drew near. That's why I said a spiritual awakening is a change in the way we think and feel and behave, and it's done to us, not by us, uh, but not without us. Willingness and grace, just a wonderful paradox. I never solved the mystery, but I thought about it and prayed about it, and I was given a poem. It didn't resolve the question, what's the difference which comes first, grace or willingness? Kind of like the chicken and the egg. But the poem gave me a sense of satisfaction in the mystery. I was taken to a place. Hear the grace. I was taken to a place, but I was willing to be taken. Hear the willingness, hear that my role. That's why I call it collaboration and cooperation. That's why I love the poetic allusion to the promises on page 75 at the end of the fifth step, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. It's an image, it's a metaphor, it's poetry. It's not certitude, it's not knowledge. But you've heard it from wise sponsors in meetings, I'm sure. It's not about knowing and feeling, it's about doing. And when you do differently, you will know differently and feel differently. That's the paradox that's been confirmed now in brain science. Because when we act differently, even though we don't know, we don't accept, we don't believe, we don't have good feelings about it, when we act differently, our brain changes. Synapse that fire together, wire together. We create new brain biology by taking new physical actions. When our feet move, we are creating neuronal paths in our brain that eventually become habits. Acts contrary to my will. I'm going to come back to the group and um, we can answer some questions. What's fascinating to me is you talk about the head can lie, the heart can lie. I think trauma is also a significant way to have my inner voices lie to me in a really convincingly strong God. I, oh my God, that's God kind of way. And then you, you, at the same time you say, but it's, it's, it's within us, uh, that the, the great reality you know, that it's deep down within. And like, 
I think it's so interesting that, I mean, I just did my fist step. Uh, uh, thank you for your worksheets on uh, the third and fourth column. It helped me a lot. And uh, it's, it's the first time I've had a kind voice in my head. Wow. In 14 years. Yeah, wow. I have a kind voice in there. And it's saying like nice things like relax, like you're going to be okay, like it's okay. And I haven't had that. So I'm just fascinated by the juxtaposition, the paradox, the contrast that you keep saying, because you keep saying it's power outside of us or power other than us, but then it's inside. And so I just wanted to. Oh, so you're that. interpreting when I say a power other than us that that's outside. And that's what I used to kind of like think, of course, even though I've been exposed to traditional mysticism from centuries of development. Um, and I, I knew about the spirit and the, all of the stuff that goes on in the vocabulary. I still had that prejudice uh, that it was out other, a power other than me was certainly outside of me. But that's why I've emphasized twice, at least in our conversation here today, that it's a uh, unsuspected inner resource. So I'm very convinced that the spirit surrounds me, but also saturates me. And that the life force, mine, that animates me, Herb, the soul of my soul is the animating force. So what, what, what brings an acorn to a sapling to an oak tree? That life force. And sunshine. there's, go, say it again. Sunshine. Uh, that's an external, but there's also nutrients and water and the genetic uh, formation of the oak tree and the acorn. So there's a lot of moving parts there. But what I'm speculating is that, and the book is, I believe, <clears throat> that there is this life force underneath the our life force that is the source of our life force. Did that make any sense? No, really. I, I mean, I, I'm following the words you're saying. Yeah. But it's pretty, that's pretty cosmic right there. The force underneath the force. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. I'm just fascinated by how other can be inside of me as well. I mean, I get the other as the addict, but the other is God. Like, and I'm not saying I disagree. I'm just saying I'm, I'm fascinated by that, those concepts sitting next to each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a term you've probably heard, spark of the divine. Yeah. That might help. In yeah. other words, I'm, I'm a flame. That's my life force. But I come from the fire. Yeah. That might get closer to it. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to put in a plug for, you know, trauma can lie very deeply. Like I thought my trauma was God for so long. Oh, well, yeah. and, and for some people it is. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Yeah, no, um, organized religion has done a lot of damage. It's done a lot of good. I don't mean to, but let's never, never overlook the damage that organized religion. I always, I, mm, my tradition has been Catholicism from the very beginning and all through graduate school and postgraduate school. So I've never had a bad experience. It's just my experience. 
but I know a lot of people that have, so. Hmm. Uh, and or with their own religious traditions. The, the, the problem with religion is like the 12 steps, it's the tool that points the way to the light. The Buddhists have a great image. The master stands on the path pointing the way to the light. Many of the disciples begin worshiping the finger. <laughs> Thank you, you got it. <laughs> Religion is the finger. Yeah. The light is the spirit. I'll yeah. work with that. Thank Good. you. No, no, just yeah. And and that's the that's the word I would use. Work with it, play with it, wear it loosely, you know, kind of explore, be very creative, step outside the box. That's why the set aside prayer was such a benefit to me. Yeah. Thanks. I, I think I want to share something. I've seen that slide about change where you say it, it's done to us, not by us, but not without us. Mm. But today, that spoke to me in a way that made me realize that that's how I felt before I came to recovery. When, you know, when I say my life flew up in front of my face and I was like, how did this happen? How did I let this happen? You know, it was like recovery turned me in another direction. Right. And um, anyway, it was just a real aha powerful moment I wanted to share. And I've seen that slide many times and it hit yep. me a different way today. Yep. Yep. And that's see, that's the preconditions of preparation. We can't make it happen, but we can prepare for the gift. At least that's my explanation of the difference between grace and willingness. Grace is the gift. I can't earn it, but I can prepare for it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Very much. You mentioned the God-shaped hole, yeah. the all-consuming emptiness that we all feel. Um, do you have any evidence, documentation, thoughts, <laughs> if you will? Um, is Has anyone ever been able to come to terms with it and just accept it? Is, has there ever been thoughts on other ways to fill it other than the spiritual, the divine, um, just from a yeah. point counterpoint standpoint? I think it's a great question and sure. There are some people that have found relationship to be totally human, satisfying themselves. Some have found a passion in art or some other creativity that has really satisfied themselves. Some have found it in therapy where they've really got in touch with their true nature. The Buddhists talk about the higher self, the true self. Uh, Dr. Alan Berger, who I'll be doing a workshop with, um, he talks about the best in us manages the worst in us. Yeah, yeah, I brought a smile to your face because I just love that gentleness of that. Why not? Exactly, higher self, true self, the best in me manages the worst in me. See, I, I almost try to avoid anymore the word spirit and the word God. I try to avoid it because it's so loaded with negative baggage and it's not necessary. 
That's, my question is not an academic question. Is God necessary? I'm, I'm going to release a series of reflections. They're long, in-depth meditations on uh, is God necessary? When is God powerless? Um, does God have a plan? Is there such a thing as God's will? Yeah, I mean, because I've thought these things through, uh, attempting to come and struggle with them, um, uh, because these are existential questions, and they're real. I, I don't want to adopt the baggage of somebody else's knowledge or experience. I want to have my own. Yeah. So challenge it all. Find your own path. Exactly. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, see, but that, that's the invitation of the 12-step spirit, isn't it? We have no rules. We have no rules, no regulations. We have nothing that you need to know or think or believe. We have a few suggestions that work for us of actions. And Bill said it very clearly in, in a conversation about the traditions. We don't need any rules or laws or regulations. There's only two disciplines in addiction. There's only two disciplines. Now, he's coming from, of course, the Christian God experience, but he's, he says there's only two disciplines. One is our addiction, and the other is a power other than ourselves. He uses the term God. We're either going for one or we're going for the other. You talk about black and white. That's why I like the dimmer switch. It's either going up or it's going down. And it's natural predisposition. It's spring-loaded to go down toward the darkness. That's unmanageability. That's the bedevilments. That's the self-will that is the bane of human existence. Yeah? Thanks. Great question. I had a question about um, where you said... Um, I'm captured by my lies, um, by my story, and the story needs to be dismantled. Yeah. Um, is it the, and then you gave these, you know, like I'll never get another job, I let my family down. Can you, can you um, explain more about that? Yes, when we do the fourth step. Okay, so that's the dismantling. The process of dismantling that false self, the the survival construction of a wall that we thought was protecting us and actually becomes our prison. That false self, that Hollywood storefront, that mask, that persona, that story that we have is just a lie. But we don't know it's a lie because we created it to protect ourselves as a survival mechanism. And when, it's, and when it's dismantled, then, then we can see reality as reality actually is rather than through the glasses. If my glasses are brown, life is shit. If my glasses are pink, life is rosy. Neither one of them is true. Life just is. Reality just is. It's not fair. It's not good, it's not bad, it's not healthy, it's not unhealthy, it's not appropriate, it's not inappropriate. Life and reality just is what it is, and I need to see what it is and adjust to it, because life never adjusts to me. That helps 
a lot. Okay. <laughs> it's a teaser, actually. It's a teaser to steps four through nine, but especially step four. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you. I was listening to YouTube and I heard Richard Rohr and uh, Oprah Winfrey and Oprah asked Richard Rohr, why does it have to be pain that causes <laughs> spiritual growth? Why yeah. can't it be something nice like baking pancakes? Yeah. And I'll just leave it at that. But what was his answer? He didn't have one, but he said that that is the way it is. The way I've heard him say something similar, but he, he's initiating it, is that there are two motivators to personal human growth. One is love, and the other is suffering. 98% of the human race are driven by suffering. My suggestion is, coming from the fourth step, that it comes from our biology, fight, flight, and freeze that gets transferred into our psychology emotions of anger and fear and shame. And until we have a rite of passage to adulthood resolving those issues, we come from suffering. And most people do not have a rite of passage into adulthood. Interesting. Well, I actually thought that maybe you do experience spiritual growth from very good things but you're so happy about the very good things while they're happening, you don't notice the spiritual growth because you're swept up in the happy thing. It could, yeah, and I can see that. I did the steps in 84, 80, uh, 88, and 91 because I was coming from pain. I did the steps in 94, the one I'm talking about here with the set-aside, because I wanted more of the good stuff. I was aware that there was more. I just wasn't sure what it was. And I've continued to <laughs> stay leaning against the dimmer switch because the light always gets brighter and then I see more and I'm not sure what to expect, but I, I now am prepared for to be surprised. Well, I don't know what it is, and I will never know what it is, but I know that it is something, and so I'm stuck like flypaper here, and uh, the suspense is killing me to see what happens with the steps. Oh, yeah, no, it's not killing me. It, it, it's, it's giving <laughs> me life. It's enlivening me. Yeah, thanks very much. I have a question. I was wondering if you could say a few words about doubt. Um, no. I, I, you know, I was brought up like with no spiritual um, tradition and no. coming to the program, I've uh, like, I've attained a spiritual practice and I do, you know, I'm willing and I act as if and, but there's sometimes the doubt just comes in, like, am I just yeah. talking to air or, and it's a real fear that there is no God. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering yeah. if that, does doubt displace faith or is it just a natural part of faith? I think it's a very natural part of being human, all right, and that um, we operate normally on evidence in the area of this journey. There's no evidence in front of us. In fact, I'll quote Richard Rohr, he's one of my major teachers. He said, faith is the acceptance of that for which there is no evidence. But once we accept it, the evidence appears. 
That's cool, right? And so um, <clears throat> doubt is what Bill wrote chapter four. We agnostics comes from the Greek word gnosis, G and the G is silent, G-N-O-S-I-S, -S, meaning knowledge. And when you put an A in front of it, agnosis, it means doubt or no knowledge, no certitude. In contrast to atheist, which is again a Greek word, theos, meaning God or the divine, and you put an A in front of it, it means no God, no divinity. An atheist firmly believes there is no such thing as spiritual. An agnostic says there may or may not be, I don't know, and I doubt, all right? And it's unknowable. Bill says 50% of us, chapter four, pages 44, 45, 50% of us are agnostic or atheist. Not a problem, because when you come to page 53, he says, all right, God is or God isn't. What's your choice? Yeah. And it's not about doubting or knowing or certitude or feeling or emotion. How are your feet moving? I made a decision, God is, and then I act as if it's true. And when I look back over my shoulder, I go, Wow, my life is really cool, so I don't care anymore. I don't care. When I die, there'll either be nothing or there'll be something. If there's nothing, I won't know. If there's something, it'll be a wonderful surprise. But I don't care because when I live as if there is this reality, my life is sweet. In fact, the word I've used for 32 years is my life flourishes. That's a pretty big word. In fact, the book by the originator of positive psychology from the University of uh, Pennsylvania, Selig, that's the name of his book, which I didn't know until I read it five years ago, Flourish. How, how human beings can become fully human, fully alive, happy and joyous. They can embrace a meaning bigger than themselves. He's not talking about spirituality. He's talking about human, human nature. Embrace a, a meaning broader than themselves and contribute to humanity around them. Sounds an awful lot like steps 11 and 12 to me. Yeah? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, You're welcome. It's a great question. Great question. Thank you so much. You said earlier that if you flirt, you're a cheat. What did you mean by that? <laughs> what do you think I meant? Uh, well, I assume that if you're in a relationship and you flirt, you're a cheat. But I yes, wanted to make sure. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. If you have a committed relationship, it all depends, of course, on the commitment. Uh, and, and, it, and it's a protection out of my own world, of course. All right. I mean, that's my experience. I didn't think I, I knew that infidelity was wrong. And after, <laughs> I, well, after I did the steps in five years of sobriety, I began to actually operate as if that was true. So, yeah, I know you laugh, but I'm telling you that, I mean, this this head is very mucky. And uh, and and after a little bit more awakening, then I realized about the flirting part, too, that that's just an ego uh, needing to be massaged and um, that in fact, it was outside the parameters of my commitment to my wife, so.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my experience as well. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful question. Thank you. And I got that from the step four sex inventory, where it asks us to, to identify and or develop our own principles. Thank you so much. One of the things that you had um, spoken, and I believe it was from the big book, is that God has come to all who have sought God's God gets closed and discloses God's self when we draw near. Yeah. And that really stuck out to me. However, as soon as it was spoken, the first thing I thought back to was at the very beginning, you also said, we can continually be seekers, but not ever be finders. Yeah. And I thought um, that paradox was interesting. And um, what I went to initially was um, that the difference between seeking and finding perhaps has everything to do with honesty, openness, and willingness. Do you think that that's the difference or do you have any comments on what may be different there? Well, I'm confident that's the difference. Um, Number one, I don't believe I was ready in the true sense of being open. Number two, I don't think I had effective teachers. All right. I had lots of wonderful people, but they, for some reason, they, they, they weren't touching me. Now, it could be because of my alcoholism, meaning I was in the practice of drinking. And even that, those first five years, I was freed from the alcohol itself, but not freed from the unmanageability and the uh, practice of that narcissistic self-centeredness. Once I began to get in touch with the spirit, because I had a really good teacher and I had a really uh, powerful suggestion that I set aside my old ideas, that's when I began to make progress. No, but, but it really is the teacher. I, I, thank you for the question, because I'm thinking it through as you're, as you're asking me. The most important answer at the heart of it is that I had an effective teacher because he wasn't coming from his head knowledge. He was coming from his experience, his own experience. So he was able to share the knowledge, but through the, uh, the words uh, uh, of experience. Does that help? It really does. Yes. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. So this is about the two disciplines. You're, uh, for me, I'm either going with my addiction or I'm going toward my higher power, which is God for me. And um, I keep going with my addiction. And something you said about, um, you know, agnostic, it makes me question because I don't understand why I keep going toward my addiction, which is I'm a food addict. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've been brought up with an organized religion. I go to church. I believe in God. However, I think I'm lacking the faith that my higher power, which I used to think was outside of me, now I'm realizing comes with is within me. I'm lacking the faith that I can tap into it. Maybe, maybe. Let me ask a couple of questions. So how long have you been in one of the 12-step programs? 11 years. Wonderful. And uh, have you done the steps? Yes. Um, A thorough, in-depth fourth and fifth step? No secrets held back? No. No what? No, I have not. I have have 
held back and suppressed. Okay, all right. So we're finding the worm in the wood right now. All Mm -hmm. right. And have you uh, completed, have you uh, attempted and or completed your ninth step? I have. Finished your ninth step? Well, I've gone through the 12 steps twice. You're not answering my question. I'm asking you about the ninth step. You know what it is? Making amends? Yes. Mm-hmm. Have you finished all of your amends that you... No. Oh, so this is not a difficult answer. Why do you think that you're going to be given freedom from your addiction when in fact you haven't done the work that promises freedom? It says in the end of the ninth step, beginning of the 10th step, we have entered the world of the spirit. We are placed in a position of neutrality. Mm-hmm. So you haven't done the work. What's interesting is that I had six years of back-to-back sobriety. We're not, we're not talking about sobriety. We're talking about a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a relationship with power. And you haven't done that work anyway. You might have it in a different way. But the book promises freedom from your addiction at the end of the ninth step. And you haven't done the fourth step, let alone the ninth step. Right, because I had to. I've only done the fourth. I've done the fourth step. Excuse my pun. Halfway, half ass. No, no, I, I get it. Um, welcome to the human race, and welcome to the majority of people in a twelve-step fellowship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're you're not unique. No, no, no. Fifty percent of the people leave my workshop in in the fourth step. Mm. Breaks it's my tough heart. Stuff. It is a very tough step. Uh, okay. It's very fearful. I, I, I'm. I'm Fearful with that step. I understand. So I've answered your question, right? Yes, yeah, thank you. <laughs> you want freedom, do the work. Yes. Yeah, I know. I'm a hard ass. No, that's okay. I, that's what I need to hear. <laughs> yes, you that's do. That's what it. I need to hear, and that's the only way I'm going to grow. Yep, 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 yep. Thank you. And as Bill said, if God chases them out of the rooms, alcohol will chase them back. Yeah. You said at the very end of the segment before we started this sharing and questions and answers, something about belief and acting um, differently. I can't remember what it was. You said something about when we believe differently, we act differently. Can you speak to that again, please? That could be too, sure. I mean, it could be, but that's not what I said. I said when we act differently, we will know and feel differently eventually. Now, in order to act differently, probably you need to know something and you need to believe something from somebody who's credible. So I, I, I really, and so I don't want to be black and white here because it, it really depends on sort of what is the real nature of your question. Do, do you have more that you want to talk about there? No, I just, I just wanted a clarification of that because I uh, wasn't really sure exactly. All right. Does that process what, what it was, but does, it does what I said. I've clarified it. Does that help? Yes. Yeah. When we act differently, it's because we believe differently. Um, well, in a way, I could see that. Yes, but that's not what I said. I can see what you're saying. Then that would that would be true. In other words, I believe this man knew what he was talking about. But it was uh, on, a, on sort of faith. 
that uh, it was outside of me. So I took different actions. When I took the actions, then I began to personally know and experience and feel differently. But I did have, oh. uh, yeah, all right, good. Okay, I get, I get it yes, now. You do. Yes, you do. I okay, can yeah, 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 okay. That, oh, <laughs> okay. That's great, good, good, good. Now we have to stay with it and don't capitulate just because you think that we're done when you're not satisfied with uh, the connection to your question. That was really good, thank you. You said something, it was on one of the sheets when you talked about the bedevilments and you said yeah. about being of service, but you, you know, you didn't really care. And I say, cause it made me like, it made me cringe, but it made me also be like, I, like, I felt like also a relief because I, I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm of service and I, you know, or somebody's going through something and, you know, I put in a note in my calendar, but it's like checking a box and it doesn't feel like authentic. And I feel shameful about it. And so I actually appreciate you saying that because it is something that like, I want to be a good person and I want to, you know, act from a place of love and service, but it isn't altruistic a lot of times. Right. right. So how, so my question is, is how do you get to a place of being more altruistic and really coming from a place of authenticity and really caring? My personal experience, great question. My personal experience is becoming aware that my motivation was corrupt originally. It was built on my narcissism. And then the man who gave me counsel that really made sense is said, yes, you're a narcissist and you need to be concerned. You're improving. Never let your concern for your motivation get in the way of actually helping. Pay attention, but help anyway. So I took the actions of helping anyway, and I fostered a daily practice of meditation and accountability for my behavior, but also for my motives talking to my sponsor or my therapist or my spiritual director on a regular basis, meaning monthly, weekly, quarterly, whatever it was, about my, my motivation, my feelings, but never, never stopping the behavior of helping to the best of my ability based on my consciousness at the time, allowing my consciousness to improve over time. So act as if act as if, and today I come from really the organic intention of helping. And to the extent I do, I can be helpful and I, it takes away my defensiveness so that in fact, I'm even more helpful. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. very much, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great, great question. Lots of great questions. So I've asked you at the end of the discussion on step two to put in writing your concept, a decision about a concept. There's no right or wrong. What do you need today? Today, not in some general way, not in order to give a good report to your sponsor, but today, personally, in your heart of hearts, what do you need what do you want 
as the construction of this concept of higher power or God as we don't understand it. And we can never understand it. Groucho Marx, probably way before most of your times as a comedian, said, yeah, Bob laughs, <laughs> he knows. Um, <clears throat> he was talking about country club membership. Any country club that would accept me as a member, I wouldn't want to be a member of. That's a great line. I, I, I transpose it here. Any God that I can understand is too small. I, ch I challenge people all the time, get a bigger God, upgrade. I can even talk a little bit from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0, whatever terminology works for you. And that's why I, I like the term sometimes the very uh, boundaryless, like flow or spirit. or mystery, but choose the name, the concept, the attributes, the qualities that you need and want it, capital I, capital T, to be. Now we're gonna talk about step three. which is made a decision, another decision. Step two doesn't say it in the step itself, but it clearly says it in the big book when on page 53, God's, uh, Bill says, oh, what's your choice? It's just a synonym for decision. Step two also is a decision. Step, step three is a decision. Step two was a decision, you made it today a new one, perhaps, about a concept. You're not creating God. Let's not be silly. You're creating your concept of a reality that has no word that's adequate because the reality is infinite and the word we choose is finite. What do we mean by those two words? Infinite means having no beginning and no end, no boundaries. Infinite is a word that we can define, but we've never had the experience of because we're finite. We had a beginning. We will have an end. That's history. But we intuitively understand and know intuitively that whatever this reality is, it's beyond our understanding. And now it says making a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. That's so big. Made a decision to turn from what to what? From our self-centeredness, unmanageability, to a power other than ourself that in fact will allow us to be free of our addiction, first half of the first step, and actually empower us to be free of our unmanageability on a daily basis. Although I'm not cured, I get a daily reprieve when I practice 10, 11, and 12. You could read pages 84 and 85. Made a decision to turn. 
to turn, spiritual awakening, a change, a change in direction. Our will and our lives, Bill says in the big book, and we'll look at it in a minute, well, what do we mean by that and how do we do it? Bill asks great questions before he gives us profound answers. You saw that in my unpacking of step two this morning or earlier on. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives. What does that mean? Now you see the step really says what most people overlook and miss misspeak. We are not turning our will and our lives over to God. Please pay attention to the words. We're turning our will and our lives over to the care of God. That's dramatically different. As we understood God, and of course my challenge today is to look at it as I don't understand. Because I can never really understand. Step three is about a relationship. Now, it doesn't say that as clearly as I'm saying it. It's a relationship with power. Bill says on page 63, I believe. Let me just take a look. Make sure I don't misquote. No, it's on page 60. Glad I looked. Just after the steps, he goes through the ABCs just to convince us or to at least challenge us to see if we're convinced of steps one and two. A, that we were alcoholic, addict, first half, first step, and could not manage our own lives, dash, unmanageability, first step, B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, which was reinforced by our journey into unmanageability, step one still, no human power, C, that God could, step two, has the power, is available, is deep down inside of me, can be reached, can be touched, can have an impact on my life. That's the decision of step two, that God could, step two, and would, hmm, has the power and will use the power. This is step three, or the introduction. If God is sought, not just laying dormant in us as the reality of the animating force, but invited to the party by our initiative. We're at step three. We decided to turn our will and our life over to. Well, what do we mean and what do we do? Those are the profound questions. I've given a summary of what we mean in the first section talking about unmanageability, which is pages 60, 61, and 62, that we're extreme examples of self-will run riot. That's what we mean by it. 
And the answer to the question, what do we do, is at the bottom of page 60. This is the how and the why of it. We had to quit playing God. Oh my gosh. That's what I saw in unmanageability, step one. Self-reliance. I make a decision based on self. And I don't know that I don't know. And I can't see that I don't see that my life doesn't work. And the insanity is, you've heard it in the meetings, I continue to do the same thing, expecting different results. In fact, some of us are so disconnected from reality, I continue to do the same thing, expecting better results. The results are always different, but they're usually worse. They're hardly ever better. And yet we don't see it, we don't connect the dots. Fred's story in right around page 40, Bill's talking about obsession. Fred uses the term strange mental blank spot. Boy, that's my story. Strange mental blank spot. It's embarrassing. It's shocking. Not that I'm an alcoholic. That was predictable from my family of origin. But that I had never seen it, despite all the very huge evidence of it. You heard me just summarize it a little bit. Why couldn't I see what was so obvious? That's the nature of the disease. Not to be able to put the dots together. Not to be able to connect the numbers. In the same way, I'm colorblind. I'm blind to some aspects of processing reality as it is. Scary, very. I, I spent 48 hours in abject terror when I had that experience in 1991. Could hardly leave the house. Seven years sober when I saw the truth that the guillotine of addiction was hanging over my head and I did not control whether it dropped or not. I did not control that. I did not even influence that. I had no power over the dropping of the guillotine other than to stay gently pressed up against power and hope against hope, as Bill says, that whatever it is I'm thinking and feeling and doing is true. It turns out it is. We had to quit playing God. Why? Well, because it doesn't work. That's what he says here. Then he says, and I'm going to say it clearer than he does in the book. We needed to find a relationship. Now he says we needed to have a director. Obviously, the relationship is actor. We needed to have a principal. The um, relationship is agent. We needed to have a parent. The relationship is child. Well, he gives us these here at the bottom of page 62. So that's why I say Bill is suggesting that we find a relationship. Well, we established the decision that there is this reality and it's deep down inside of me. Well, what's the problem? Well, I cannot connect. I need a relationship. Well, in fact, at the end of step three, we're going to ask a different question. 
how come I can't establish the relationship effectively? Well, because there's obstacles. There's fog at the very least, impediments, clouds, obstacles to the sunlight of the spirit. And step four through seven is to identify and remove, diminish those clouds, that those obstacles, so that the sunlight can shine in us to us. And then eventually we do steps eight, nine, and 10 to eliminate, diminish the clouds in us, the obstacles in us to our relationship with others so that the sunlight shines in us, to us, and then eventually through us to others. A wonderful image of how this works, this program works, light and darkness. Most good, most good ideas are simple, and this concept is the keystone. So now he's back giving us a, a reference to the spiritual arch through which we walk to freedom. He alluded in step two to a foundation, step one, and then he was very clear literally on page 47 saying that step two is the cornerstone the first stone put on the foundation that sets the direction of the entire arch. And now he's saying step three is the keystone. A decision for power, my relationship. A decision based on trust, moving my feet as if my decision in step two was valid. The keystone. That is the stone at the top of the arch that holds the entire structure together. He says a triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from addiction at the very least, he promises on page 84. After we finish the ninth step, we've entered the world of the spirit. We've been placed in a position of neutrality. But freedom from addiction is, the, is a, an important promise. But the most important part of the promise is freedom from unmanageability. No, freedom from unmanageability. We are empowered to manage our lives. I don't have the power over my addiction. I don't have the power over my will with regard to my life on my own power. But I have the power to choose God or no God. And when I choose God and act like that is a relationship, I am given power to manage my life. In fact, <clears throat> on page 63, he gives us two more relationships. In that first paragraph, he talks about employer. Obviously, the relationship with, is with employee. And then in the second paragraph, he talks about makor. It's a kind of an awkward word, makor. But we could term creator. That's I like that. It's easier for me anyway. Maker would be the opposite. Would be made uh, the artifact, the product. Creator would be the created being. God is my creator. I am the creation, the spark of the divine, as I quoted from Genesis. Image and likeness. We'll toy with that at some point. Probably not today. It's a great meditation. How am I the image and likeness of God? 
or the higher power or the spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things. Oh, the two things that make me human, my mind and my will. Would that be a reflection of my Maycor? Cats produce kittens, orange trees produce oranges, people produce little people, human babies. If in fact I'm created, I've come from source into reality, I'm a reflection of the source image and likeness. Hmm. I know and I choose. Is that the image and likeness? Is that part of the reason I get confused and I act like God? That self will run riot, he says, which is the human nature. And then the addict nature is extreme example of self will run riot. I made more comment than I thought I was on likeness and uh, um, image and likeness. Think about it. It's worth thinking about from my standpoint in the context of steps two and three. And then the promises on page 63. When we sincerely took this position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. What position? Oh, this relationship, this new relationship. And perhaps the word that you use to re represent the concept that you chose just a few minutes ago connotes or reveals a relationship that your heart yearns for. That's a word that I want you to embrace because of its richness. What do you yearn for in a relationship with the spirit? Yearn for from not your, just your head, of course, but from your heart, from your gut, from the marrow of your bones, your very soul, the life force in you that Carl Jung talked about, that deep thirst, that deep hunger that is our human nature for the infinite. What translates now practically for you into a relationship? Write down a word or a phrase that comes to you as part of this reflection, the answer to yearn for. In the beginning of my work in 1988, I chose father. I wanted to rehabilitate the term in my own experience because my relationship with my father had been so awful. And I was then a father and I wanted to be a better father than I had experienced. So I chose father. Later on, I chose mentor teacher. Later on in doing the step work, I, I chose guide, light. Later on, I chose, as I mentioned, mystery. Because it became very clear that no word was adequate, so it didn't matter. I alternate, alternatively used it, IT, to neutralize any image or, or historical valence, any attachment or energy around it. And as I've already mentioned, I, today I'm using the word flow with a capital F. Reality is a flow of evolution. 
and I'm in the flow. More about that in a minute. Being all powerful, God provides what we need. Pay attention to the words. Page 63, God provides what we need. Not what we want, what we need. But there's two conditions here. If we keep close to God. Well, how do we keep close to God? Well, maybe prayer and meditation, prayer when I'm talking, meditation when I'm listening. Maybe step 11. If I perform God's work well, well, what is God's work and how do I perform it well? See, I'm a big book fundamentalist and literalist. I try to understand what Bill is getting at here. What does he mean? Perform God's work well. Well, he said on page 68, find my destiny. If I want serenity, just to, we are in the world to play the role God assigns. Hmm. It's in the fear inventory on page 68. The importance of it is the next sentence. Just to the extent that we do, as we think God would have us, and humbly rely on God, that's a mouthful. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? More mouthful. What does all that mean? We're in the world to play the role God has assigned. Figure out your destiny and do it if you want serenity. That's what it means. If you want contentment, if you want a sense of purpose and meaning and value in your life, figure out what are your gifts? What is your invitation? I love that word. What is your invitation? Each one of you has a fingerprint that's unique. Never has been a fingerprint like that. There currently isn't a fingerprint like yours, and there never will be a fingerprint like yours. DNA is equally as unique. And your gifts are equally as unique. Your whole history has developed you to be uniquely useful in contributing to the community of humanity. What is that? What is your unique gift and your unique invitation to use it? Later on, Bill says on page 103, your job now is to be where you can be most useful and helpful. I love that word help. I dropped the word service. It's too sophisticated, said the voice inside of me in meditation about 20 years ago. Drop the word service. It's too sophisticated. Use the word help because it has earth in it. It has dirt in it. You will sweat. You will spend time. You will be frustrated. You will use time and energy in ways that sometimes you're not inclined to. Balance then is your challenge, of course. So if I read this in terms of steps 11 and step 12, being all powerful, God will provide what I need if I do step 11 and step 12. That's not a stretch. Try it in a meditation. 
established on this footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves. Here's the dimmer switch going bright and the darkness diminishing. Here the turning from selfishness, self-centeredness to a healthy other-centeredness, other with a capital O and other with a small O, steps 11 and 12 respectively. More and more, here the dimmer switch, one notch at a time, one click at a time, a little bit more light each, each time we take appropriate action and the next indicated step. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, hear the promise, but hear the process. As we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of God's presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. The fear of death. We are reborn, he said. We're given a new life, totally my experience. 1988. I was given abstinence in 1984. But I woke up in 1988. I didn't know that I was asleep dreaming that I was awake until I woke up. And then the process of awakening took another 10 years in terms of what I experienced as full awakening. An experience of the three components of step one and the real meaning of steps two and three. A relationship a vital, vibrant relationship with a power other than myself that changes as I do. This man suggests that I create a prayer, paraphrasing the prayer in the big book, the third step prayer. And he said very clearly, it's not to improve the prayer in the book, it's to understand the prayer in the book. And I did that. I've done it more than once, actually. Each time I come back and pray the prayer in the book because I have never been able to find any more effective or valuable verbiage than is actually in the book. And in fact, in 2008, 2009, when we had the financial collapse in America, <clears throat> uh, I had been two years retired. I had done my due diligence in a financial plan, and I was fairly well set, except when the world collapsed financially in 2008, 2009, and I got terrified. I had no source of additional income. My portfolio had been cut in half. My housing had been diminished by 40%. It was like terrifying. And in fact, so much terror that I couldn't sleep at night. Here's Herb, the spiritual person, the leader of workshops, having to get up three nights, three times every night to change his pajamas because they're soaking wet from fear. Within a couple of weeks, of course, and some accountability and some wonderful guidance, I began to stay in bed and pray the third step prayer, one word at a time, so that I could digest each word and each phrase. And the first night it took three hours before I was able to go to sleep. 
and then over the days doing the prayer one word one phrase at a time within about a month i was able to begin the prayer and fall asleep immediately not needing to change my bed sheets because i wasn't in that cold sweat but i experienced the prayer differently for the very first time i saw words i had never seen before in all the efforts at rewriting the prayer and praying the prayer and meditating about the prayer i had never seen the words to build with me that was like a wonderful gift and insight god i offer myself to thee that was pretty straightforward as the beginning of the third step prayer the turning relieved me of the bondage of self i'd had an experience with unmanageability i knew that was the spiritual malady i knew that was the ongoing problem a daily reprieve take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those i would help of thy power thy love and thy way of life may i do thy will always God, I offer myself to thee to build with me. I had never seen that. Very much like the seven-step prayer, my creator, I need to be recreated is the implication. I'd had that experience in 1988. It changed my entire relationship with my wife. My creator, I need to be recreated. I saw that. I had seen that the third step prayer doesn't have an amen. For me, my interpretation is that this is the beginning of a process. Step three is the beginning of a process of establishing a relationship, a true relationship with my authentic self. Steps four through seven is the commitment of the third step. He says very clearly after giving us this information on the third step at the bottom and on the next page that although we may have a powerful experience with the third step, it won't last unless you do the, the balance of the steps. Essentially steps four through seven need to follow up immediately on step three. To build with me. You know, I'm 24 years sober. And I'm seeing it for the very first time. Because I was ready to see it. The darkness had been dispelled at a level because of this anxiety that I had experienced because I was self-reliant and not God-reliant. I knew none of that until I got on the other side of it, of course. Bill doesn't use the word sponsor here because it's not in the big book. It hasn't been developed in the culture yet. The word sponsor is not in the big book. The word surrender is not in the big book. Surrender is not step three. It's used in step three. I used it myself for about 10 or 15 years until I had the awareness from doing this work that surrender is step one. When I have complete defeat, I surrender but not in step three, it's not passive. Step three is I make a decision to turn. It's a ferocious act of my will. I've been given the use of my will in step two. God is or God isn't, what is your choice? 
And now I'm given my will again in step three, make a decision to turn. It's not surrender. It's a ferocious act of the use of my free will to commit to doing the balance of the steps to the best of my ability. And I'm going to do that publicly by praying with another person. Each time the man who took me through the steps asked me to pray with him on our knees and they were all very clear. We got on our knees not to get God's attention, but to get our own attention. An act of submission, an act of humility, an act of subordination. A prayer with public witness to our commitment. The wording, of course, is quite optional, he says at the bottom. Expressing the idea. See, all prayers are intentions, not words. Don't get locked into rote recitation of words. Get underneath them to the intention. What's your motive? What's your belief? What is it that you're doing? Having a conversation with a friend, there's nothing robotic about that. Voicing it without reservation. Well, of course we have some reservations. We have no real idea where we're going with this when in fact we turn our will and our life over to the care of God. If honestly and humbly made, an effect sometimes a very great one was felt at once. Over time, <clears throat> I came to understand that step three is about alignment. That word's not in the big book. When I turn, I put myself in alignment. So look at my arms here. When I am self-will and unmanageability, my free will is going against reality. There is a life force. There is a life flow. There is this reality. Let's just assume that you accept that. There is this life force, there is this flow, there is at least evolution of reality as a biological, geographic, geol geological uh, 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 reality. But I put my will in contrast to that. That's why I suffer. And the whole point of the turning, watch my hands now, the whole point of the turning is to be in alignment with. I turn my will and my life over to the care of God like the GPS. I know where I want to go. I have a car. I have the keys. I know how to drive. I have a license. I have insurance. But when I get in the car, I don't know how to get there. So I put the address into the GPS and I pay attention. And if I make a mistake and I'm listening to the GPS, I correct it. That's the 10th step. When I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. I'm out of alignment with reality. In the third step, I make a commitment to be in alignment with reality. In the fourth step, I identify all the ways I'm out of alignment with reality in an effort to be back in alignment with reality. And in the 10th step, it says we are entering into the world of the spirit, which is in fact, a place where we can stay if we stay in alignment with the 10th step. When I'm disturbed, we adjust. In the morning, I need guidance so that I know by GPS 
and I listen to the GPS as to what to do and how to do it and, and where to go. And I operate on principles that are articulated in step 12, the principles especially of helping other people. And to the extent that I'm in alignment, I'm in serenity, I'm in harmony and I have contentment. To the extent that I'm out of alignment, I don't. Step three is a decision for a relationship and for alignment with that relationship. I'm going to uh, go off of the PowerPoint now for about 15 minutes. While we have some questions about that, then I would invite you to join me in the third step prayer. Um, I'm going to do it differently maybe than you've done it if you haven't done it with me, and that is antiphonally. And what that means is it's a similar way that we prayed in the monastery with one bank of monks on the left beginning a prayer. And after that initial prayer, the bank on the right responded with prayer and back and forth. Antiphonal has its roots in Latin, <clears throat> meaning phone, phonus which is sound and anti, which is back and forth like a tennis match. And I will pray the third step prayer from the book. You don't need to know it. You don't need to read it. It's best that you actually just pay attention to the process. I will pray a prayer. I will pray a word and pause for you to pray it out loud. Probably we'll unmute for that so that we can all have the experience of the community prayer. I mean, you don't have to participate, obviously. I have no rules, I'm making a suggestion. And then I'll pray the next word or phrase and then you'll respond after the pause. And we'll pray the third step prayer with a, a commitment to our journey, to our commitment to our relationship, to our commitment to remove the obstacles in us and have the obstacles in us removed. That collaboration, that walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I, I've, I've been in AA for quite some time and I always kind of hit the wall at the third step because I, came to believe that unless I was successful at turning my life over to the will of God, that I could not proceed further. Yeah. Uh, I had a very good sponsor who said, go back and reread the third step. What does it say? And basically it says, you just make a decision. He said, whether you're successful or not really doesn't matter. You have to make that decision in order to move forward. And it was like an aha moment for me that I did not have to be 100% successful in this effort. So I just wanted to share that with anybody that has a similar mindset, that it's just a decision. That's all it is. Well, it, it's a decision that implies action, though. The man who took me through the work said, a decision without action is fantasy. 
True. Yeah. See, the commitment in step three is very clear on page 64, is that nothing's going to happen on a permanent basis unless you continue with this with the step work steps four through seven at the very least. So right. yes, it's a, it's a commitment, but what is it a commitment to? It's, it's a, a commitment, commitment to action. It's a commitment to continuing with the steps because exactly. basically it just says it could have little permanent effect unless followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things. Right. Right. Yeah. If I put the um, address into my GPS, but I never put the car in drive, <laughs> I wouldn't get any place. I would know where I'm going and I'd know how to get there, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't get there because I'm in neutral. Right. Yeah. And anyway, uh, I, go ahead. So I, I just wanted to share that, 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 that was just something that had stopped me forever until he pointed that out. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to try. Well, and it depends on what successful means, too. See, I'm a word guy, and I listen to the words. What does successful mean? And each well, one of us will have a different take on that. Go ahead. I was, I was going to say that in my mindset, success would have been that I were able to turn my will over to God 100% of the time and never, and never be doing my own will, basically be successful in, in that endeavor. So, and what do you think about that now? I think it's impossible. <laughs> yes. Yes, of course. Do you have any other perfectionistic tendencies? <laughs> uh, a few, but I'm still working on those. So. Well, exactly. And uh, I find maybe 30 to 40% of us are perfectionists. And um, it, that's, it's, it, that's its own unmanageability, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I want to be fully human. It's not possible to be a perfect human. And that's why I had to quit playing God because only God is perfect, right? Yeah. Yeah, at least uh, in conceptual terms. Uh, just you reminded me, though, the GPS has a, you know how we do with acronyms. We're really good at that. GPS, God Positioning System. Yeah. I, like I use that in the 10th step as well as the third step, because uh, that's why I do my morning meditation to get guidance for the day. And quite frankly, that's why I do a periodic meditation over a long weekend to have guidance for my life. So thank you so much. Very much. Okay. Thank you. I've been on step three for quite a while, I think, because I take it so seriously. So I can appreciate you saying that they are the foundation two and three. Um, and I think my question is, you mentioned before, you know, there's a big difference between turning our lives over to the care of God or, and just God. And for me, I think having suffered a lot of abandonment, the care of and turning my will over to, the, to the, somebody that's going to care for me has been really difficult for me. And I can, um, I'm very like humbled by God's grace. And I find I have a good relationship with God other than that. But um, also when you said the decision is a, it's a ferocious act of my free will. I mean, I'm, I'm very humbled by that statement. Um, so I guess I just wanted to, to share that with you and see what type of feedback or guidance you had for me so that I can move forward. What's blocking you from moving forward? I think the uh, accepting his care for me. Um, what would it mean for you to 
understand that in fact you did accept God's care for you. Well, how would you evaluate that? How would you know that? Um, I think that my belief is that God is everything. But when you ask the next question, I only act that belief 50% of the time. Well, welcome to the human race. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of us are doubt on a regular basis, but it's how your feet move. It doesn't matter what you think and it doesn't matter what you feel is the point I made. It does matter how your feet move. And that's why Bill says, say the prayer and move on. You're not stuck. Okay. You're, you're not willing to move on to the fourth step. Oh, okay. And you know how I know you're willing to do the fourth step? How? You have pen and paper in hand. <laughs> <laughs> It's about action. It's about action. That's right. Exactly. And I did not know anything about what I'm talking about when I did that third step in 1988. I went into the fourth step. And when I finished my ninth step, eight months later, and I looked back over my shoulder in February of 1989, I looked back and I go, oh, wow, look at that. I have been changed. Here's the vocabulary. I didn't even know I was changing during that entire period, but I was listening to the GPS. And you know what? I found myself in a place of delivery. I didn't get there. I was delivered there to be awakened. Does that help? It does help. And then do you think this whole care of and not being cared for is just my story? Well, you have a connotation, I believe, that care means that you feel it. Mm. There's nothing feeling about the spiritual life. It's a trap, for, especially for addicts. We like to feel good. We like to feel good now, and a whole bunch of it. Thank you very much. Please pass the alcohol. Please pass the cocaine. Please pass the ice cream. Whatever it is, right? But it's not about feeling. Spirituality is about a relationship. Yeah. And you only know it after you begin to experience it. Now, you might feel really good after the third step. Bill says that. You might have a tremendous big experience, but it won't last unless you do the fourth step. And then the other steps through the ninth step and finish the ninth step. That's when you're promised those promises, pages 83, 84 promises. When you, it says halfway through, it's just not my experience. My experience is when people finish the ninth step, they have the awakening. And that's not a feeling. That's an awareness that they've been radically changed. Their behavior has changed. Their thinking has changed. Their attitudes have changed. Their feelings have changed. And it's not because we got knowledge and we arm wrestled it to the ground is because we were wrestled to the ground. Yeah. 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 That's helpful. Feelings are really important. They help us navigate the 10th step. When I'm disturbed, I can put myself back in alignment in partnership, in partnership with the spirit, in partnership with power. At least this is my interpretation of it.
All right. And then when you said just real quick about you know there's a big difference between the care of God and God. What yeah. exactly do you mean? Do you mean by that? Sure. God doesn't want my will. God doesn't want my life. God gave me that as the creator. What does altruism mean? Look up the word altruism. It was used earlier. I looked it up in my pursuit of trying to understand and relate to unconditional love. The definition of altruism, doing something for the benefit of somebody else with no possible benefit for yourself. Father Greg Boyle, a Jesuit priest, started Homeboy Industries here in Southern California, taking the men and women out of the gangs and helping to put them back into society. He wrote a book called Tattoos on the Heart. And in that book, he said, perhaps, listen to this, it's beautiful. Perhaps God created humans because God thought they would enjoy it. That's beautiful. God, God, if God is, God, whatever that reality is, is infinite, completely self-contained, doesn't need anything. Why would God create humans? I mean, assuming that the story is correct. <laughs> uh, why would God create humans? Well, maybe because he thought they would enjoy it, or she thought they would enjoy it. Or it thought they would enjoy it. We don't need to put a gender on it. Right? Yeah. That's unconditional love. All right? So I'm assuming that all of that is true when I put myself into the third step. I'm going to be in alignment with the universe, with evolution, with the flow, assuming that at its core, it's good. I'm assuming that. Now, I only know it after I do that. Down the road, when I look back over my shoulder and I go, wow, my life is good. Maybe there's a correlation between what I do and what I experience. Okay. Yeah? Yeah, very good. These are profound questions that you're asking. Thank you very much. Very much. It took me 21 years to read and understand the sentence, being convinced we're at step three. Um, the first requirement that we convince that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And so I was just absent to that point in time, something like Bill was when he wrote his letter on emotional sobriety I, at about 21 years also. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he came to the conclusion, as you know, because you talk a lot about it, that um, he was in a situation of unhealthy external dependencies yeah. to satisfy himself and to satisfy these things, which is what I, where I found myself. Dependency on AA. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure, including yeah, including going to the, the, the meetings and stuff like that. So anyways, uh, Bishop, Bishop Michael Curry, the head of the Episcopal Church in the States, writes about how the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Yeah. And that is the root of our my problem anyway, selfishness, yeah. self-centeredness. Yeah. So all of this basically is learning how to love unconditionally, yeah. like you're talking about altruism. Yeah. Um, and and I, I kind of learned in practicing this and trying to practice this and trying, first of all, of course, that I, I don't know when I'm in self-will, but and I can't get out of self on my own. But um, it's kind of a, a zero sum game. 
I'm either in self-will or I'm in God's will. There's no other state. Yeah. And they're, they're mutually exclusive for me. Yeah. 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 But you don't allow that to, in, to beat yourself up. You oh, no, 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 no. I just, I, just re, I just remind myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th that's my natural tendency, my right. ego-based tendency. That is and right. How, yeah. And how do I try and practice yep. to get out of that? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's well, an interesting it, process, but you know, so many years. Well, and that's what Bill reinforces in the 10th step, doesn't he? We've entered yeah. the world of the spirit. We're not cured, but we have a daily reprieve. Yeah. He says, he says, watch for resentment and fear and dishonesty and selfishness, the things we unpack in step four. In step 10, he said, watch for them when they crop up. He doesn't say if, just like what you just said. I will chronically be in self-will, and I need to cyclically get realigned. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. Chuck C. here wrote a book called, well, a book was written on a retreat he said he did called A New Pair of Glasses. And in there he says, love is a verb. Love is action. God is love. God is action. Unconditional love is this flow, this flow of reality. And you could play with the words radiate and magnetism. It's a, it's a wonderful meditation for steps two and three. This flow has the, the dynamic of like our heartbeat system, uh, distillé and uh, whatever it is, um, the other opposite of that, uh, magnetic and radiant. So more of that might be helpful. All right. Thank you. My question is, in your experience... Do you believe that there is any world wisdom tradition? I don't want to say religions, because there are a lot of religions that feel a little off the mark. But the wisdom tradition at the root of any religion, whether it's Abrahamic or, or it doesn't matter. Do you think there are any of those roads that don't lead to flow, God, whatever you want to call it? No, every one of them is the development of an experience of an individual who had disciples who then institutionalized and codified the teaching and it got uh, frozen in time, unfortunately, and it got to be religio, which means a ligament, a connection to, but a corruption of the original message. That's the problem. And the 12 steps is no different, all right? There's lots of meetings that are very rigid and, quote, has an orthodoxy about it, very similar to religion. So the answer is every, every attempt by human beings to find the truth about what we're talking about underneath the underneath the underneath, they're all the same, absolutely. My own spiritual director said, Herb, the spiritual life is the spiritual life. It's just got vocabulary from a tradition or from a culture or from a historical event that makes it different. And so there's nothing that I said that was new in terms of the human methodology for transformation. 
I mean, psychologists, physiologists, theology, philosophy, they could all relate to the verbiage. Unfortunately, they can't, re they can't experience the process. And that was my journey and frustration that I was a finder, not a seeker until I did the methodology of the 12 steps. And it, it was a methodology that was so simple, so accurate, and so mm, human that it created that transformation that opened, 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 opened me up, cracked the core. So then do you, in your personal opinion, yeah. feel that an individual who starts to see the pattern gravity, for lack of a better word, of God, um, that we're better off kind of picking one and practicing it and sticking to it very transcendentally or exploring and seeing kind of a thread that's, you know, Huxley-like, perennial. I'm very practical. What will you do? What can you do? Well, what helps you? I know people that have returned to the one of their traditions. All right. And I know people who have not. So it, it's just like, what works for you? And there's, fortunately, it's a very individual journey and choice. And we have a community that supports that. One of the more challenging phrases I heard about five years ago, and when I repeat it, it creates a lot of angst in the group. I'm gonna do it here at the end so that we have the angst. <laughs> God protects us from nothing and supports us in everything. That's a, that's a brain twister, a little bit. It's very challenging, very confrontational. I, I heard it from somebody. I've repeated it because I believe it, it's, a, it's one of those cold glasses of water in the face that goes, what? <laughs> because it challenges a lot of what we hear and think and feel. God protects us from nothing and supports us in everything. Thank you so much, that's great, thank you. Wonderful, so now I'm going to invite you to the prayer of the third step. We're going to stay recording and we'll stay after the prayer for any comments that you might have or want to make. I'm going to put it on the screen only so that you see that it's there. And it's the prayer from the big book. You don't have to look at it. You don't have to memorize it. You don't have to know it. And obviously you don't have to say it, but I'm inviting you to say it. And I'm going to pray it, as I mentioned, antiphonally. I'll pray a word. I'll pause and you can pray the same word. I'll pray the next word or phrase and pause and you pray that word or phrase out loud as a community. And so we'll go through the prayer word or phrase by word or phrase and then we'll finish. So I want you to actually close your eyes and remember what you wrote in terms of your concept that you want or need, the concept 
that you wrote of what you want or need in your higher power, the attributes or qualities, assuming that you thought about it as I led you through that reflection and you may have written it down. What is the connotation of that word or, or those words in terms of a relationship? And did you use that to, in fact, write down the relationship that your heart yearns for? A relationship with this power. Your choice. It's a decision. Your choice. It's about your free will. This is about power. This is about light. This is about a resource deep inside. What do you need? What do you want? What words or phrases are in your heart? What presence are you conscious of? In you, outside of you, all around you. This is a commitment to remove the obstacles to this relationship. This third step prayer is a commitment. And that's why Bill, I believe, asks us each to do it with somebody else. In the book, he said, we suggest that you pray this with a spiritual advisor or a good friend. Because it becomes then public witness. Every one of you has, in fact, taken the third step today, actually, by participating in this exercise, by participating, by writing, by participating, by still being here. You've already taken the third step because you've showed a willingness to commit to the process. But now you're going to out loud witness to that commitment in this community that we've established today. And I invite you to pray antiphonally, one word, one phrase at a time as I pray it, one word or phrase at a time. God, God. I offer myself to you. I offer myself to you. To build with me. To build with me. And to do with me. And, and, and to, to do, do with, me, with me as you wish as you, as wish. you, as you wish. wish relieve me of the bondage of self relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will that I, I may better, better do your will. will take away my difficulties Take, take away, take away, take away my That victory over them. That, that victory, victory over them. them. They bear witness. They bear, they bear witness. witness. To those I would help. To those I would help. Of your power. Of your power. Of your power. power. Your love. Of your love. Your love. Your love. Of your love. And your way of life. And, and your, your way, way, of, way life. of life. May I do your will always. 
May, May I, I do your will always. always. Thank you so much for joining in that community witness to your commitment. Um, oh, I, I'm going to share something else just to round it out here. Let me see if this works. I talked about the spiritual arch, and I just want to round that out to give you an actual picture of it as I've pictured it. We have this foundation, which is step one. Willingness, which is the cornerstone, the first stone placed on the foundation that sets the direction of the entire arch. We have step three, which is the keystone, that decision to turn. And it promises when we finish step five that we will find freedom. But then, as you can see, I just added resentment as the building block. Bill doesn't tell us that, but since he closes out the metaphor in step five, it assumes that perhaps the building blocks are step four, resentment and fear and dysfunctional, inappropriate, unhealthy sex and secrets and dishonesty because we're looking for freedom. This is the spiritual arch to freedom. We've seen this picture of the bondage of addiction, but it's also the bondage of self. And we've seen the freedom that is potentially available to us. When we do steps four through seven and literally identify that we're holding the bars, nobody has imprisoned us except ourselves. So I thought that might give you some grist for the mill and perhaps continue with us on the balance of the journey over the balance of the year as we unpack each of the steps. I thought I would share uh, what, what I did today, which was um, when you asked for, uh, and I did this uh, you know, a long time ago, but what do I need from a higher power? Um, and I, it came to me today in, in my life right now. I need confidence, assurance, and guidance. Yeah. Um, okay. And so when it came to the word, like what's the word? I, I said supporter. <laughs> right. Um, so just now we were praying, um, you know, take away my difficulties. And you're, and you're explaining that, you know, our, our bedevilments that we're going to work on in step four to remove us from these, from these goals. It's like. Uh, well, why don't I have confidence? Well, you know, I'm holding, I'm, my lack of confidence is a bedevelopment, my lack of assurance, my, uh, my not seeing the way, you know, I need a guide because I'm not, I'm not sure of my way, you know, in my, in, in life, just generally. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then I get back to like, you know, the Wizard of Oz. It's like you had the damn shoes on your feet the whole time. You just needed somebody <laughs> to tell you, click your heels. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. It, it always feels like everything in the 12 steps always feels like that. But, but I don't think that God, that I'm God. I think that God is in me, but it's not me. And um, anyway, yeah. I'm just really grateful for you and thank you. Yeah, that's a point I really drive home next weekend. Um, about that very, as you've heard me share before, uh, although I know I am not God, I am also not not God. And that's a paradox I'll unpack next week also. Yeah. 
the uh, the concept uh, that I have identified is is a father. My father was killed in an accident when I was seven years old. Oh, yeah. And um, in two thousand in two thousand fourteen, on the celebration of his uh, birthday, I wrote a letter to him. Uh, cool. Just. Um, uh, to tell him about my life and the things that I have accomplished. And I mentioned my two siblings, my brother and sister. And, and I told him that, uh, that I thought he would be, he would be proud of the, uh, of the people we had become. Wonderful. And uh, I just was overcome with this, with this sense uh, during the, the recitation of the third step prayer that he was, he was here. I felt his presence and it was, it's, it was just a very powerful experience. And I just want to, I just want to share that. You know, that's the native American, uh, connection or some other cultures with ancestors, isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah, you're, oh, you're so welcome. When I made amends to my father, I went to a cemetery, random cemetery. And uh, I won't go through the process, but I, I, I like what you're just experiencing. I, I really invited his spirit and I actually was quite aware and felt like mm -hmm. his spirit was present. It was like <laughs> pretty extraordinary. Yep. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Something that really struck me was that you said, assume, this is a quote, but, you know, but I, I, I can't relate it to things and I'm trying to understand it. Assuming at its core that it's good. What's good? Yeah. The relationship with God is good because oh. what, what, what triggered me, whatever happened inside me was that I tend to think of the world as, as um, not, benevolent, not benevolent. Do you understand? And so think. it's, um, it'd be nice to have um, this, this feeling of, yeah. of goodness or yeah, care. Well, again, um, the feeling is one thing. The choice is another thing. Okay. And um, I, I came across that kind of uh, inspiration in the late, in the nineties when I was exposed to a teacher named father Thomas Keating. He's a Trappist monk who did a teaching here in 1990 in our area, a three-day uh, retreat workshop on uh, a form of meditation called centering prayer. And part of his vocabulary was that each of us has a center of goodness, a core of goodness. I know. Wow, wow, that's nice. Well, it well. First of all, it's theologically very sound and philosophically very wonderful. But it was just like I had exactly the experience that you had just now when I first heard it. The core of goodness. Now I'm a psych major. I studied abnormal psychology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when I heard that, I thought, oh, let me explore that. And of course, then I began exploring positive psychology as it was becoming manifest in 1990 also. So maybe it was sort of in the air at the time, but that phrase has stayed with me. So what I meant, thank you for listening and thank you for asking your question. What I meant by that was that the universe is good. That 
underneath the underneath the underneath in terms of the creation is good, that the creator is good, and that everything emanates out of that original and unconditional and unilateral goodness. And does that ever give me a comforting contentment and a attitude toward reality as being essentially good and then dealing with the speed bumps yeah, that come true. from, you know, evolution means that there's going to be volcanoes and earthquakes. Yeah. And free will means that there's going to be criminality and tragedies. Yeah. But they're all now explained in a universe that's good. And because we have free will, there's going to be deviations in terms of poor experiences. I often, uh, my relationship with God is kind of, I cannot be closer to God than I am to myself. So often the distance between God and myself is the same as the distance between myself and myself. But the problem is I'm often not close to myself so I'm often not close to God. <laughs> well, at least in your, in your awareness and in your feelings. Yes, yes. But the faith decision is it doesn't matter what you're aware of and what you feel. The existential reality is that God is closer to you than you are to yourself. Yes, yes. So I'm just, yeah. So I guess what, I just have to keep holding that and keep uh, taking action to move in the right direction. And making an effort to remember. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's called meditation. Okay. In the morning to remember. Thank you. Yeah. Well, what is the, what is the step 11 saying? Sought a very active process through prayer and meditation, a very active process of talking and listening to improve my conscious contact with God. Exactly. I, I do that on a regular basis. Oh, but listen to the words. It doesn't say that you have a conscious contact. It says, today I want to improve it, or maybe even have one in your case where you forget. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah. So I have heard you talk about flow and water and re-becoming one with water. And today I heard you talk about fire. So other than like the four elements, which I'm starting to see as a pattern here, are there others? Probably. Outside? Are any that you use in particular or that you've experimented with? Maybe. We'll see, huh? I mean, I, I'm not aware of it. You're aware now of hearing a couple things that... I wasn't aware that I was emphasizing, but clearly at the moment I was thinking of the water, the wave, which I'll be using next week. Um, in another topic, I used the fire concept because that was uh, where I was in terms of my awareness. And so there may be others that come up. I try to make my words and concepts very concrete through metaphor and pictures so that different people can learn differently. You know, some people learn audibly, some people learn tactually, some people learn verbally, some people learn visually. And uh, I try to sort of embrace all of that to communicate effectively. So I have no idea what the total picture will look like until we've painted it, right? 
But I've heard you very intentionally say that this year you call God flow. That oh, it's yeah. about water this year. Oh, I'm I, just curious, yeah. in your past, have you gone through other iterations of... Actually, that was your interpretation that it was water, the flow. You're right. You're uh, absolutely right. Because that is, that is not, at least my, uh, my thinking behind it was more wind, spirit, the flow of oxygen, the flow of that very immaterial kind of reality, the, just the flow of uh, evolution, for instance. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, well, see, you helped me unpack it here. So thank you so much. That's great. Forgive me for piggybacking on this, but now we're getting into the discussion of spirituality versus science. You know, flow, oh, airflow. Go ahead. Yeah. Airflow, flow of water, volume, the volume in our hearts, the volume of a jar. All metaphors, right. But this is all interconnected. Uh, this oh. is. Absolutely. There is no science without God. There's no God without science. It's all the big cosmic, huh? Yeah. And we're all just in the atoms of it pinging along. I guess this is more a, a verbalization of what just hit me. And I'm like, oh, I got it. Free radical and the whole yeah. cosmic... Yeah. quagmire <laughs> appreciate that uh no no it's wonderful thank it's, you something to think about yeah no and uh, what you might given the question and my anticipation of what uh, how you approach things you might enjoy if you're don't, not familiar with ken wilbur you might enjoy him yeah uh the theory of everything would be a book that i would he's written 30 books, but uh, he's a current philosopher, brilliant, brilliant, uh, integration, inter integral thinker and philosopher. And, and um, the theory of everything would give you sort of a platform for beginning to really kind of like make sense of everything that you just said. You once said to me, the reason I don't pray is I don't believe. You remember that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, my wife died 14 months ago. Yeah. I've been praying ever since. <laughs> yeah. I think the loss of that relationship caused me to question relationships. All right. Especially God. Yeah. And I've learned today that just mouthing words isn't the answer. It is relationship with God. Yeah. So I thank you for that. Yeah, and I thank Thomas Keating for that because he's the one that made it really clear. I mean, I'd done the step work and all of that, but it came at a time when that that really resonated with me the way he said it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you so much. I'm certain that everybody um, is, you know, subscribed to take what you like and leave the rest and interpreting things the way that they need to interpret them or they feel right. like the message is being delivered to them. A hundred percent, right. However, um, with that said, if you personally had something that you would have hoped for people to take out of today, what, what would you say that would be? Well, all right. That 
I have the power of decision. Let my willpower chooses what it is I am going to believe and base my entire life on. And that it doesn't have to be something that I know for certitude or that I have a, a feeling about. But that if I choose it and behave accordingly, that that's the essence of steps two and three. Yeah. I love that. Thank you very much. Well, I'm, I'm really pleased that you answered that because that's the, that's helped me focus and maybe it helped people take away something from the focus. Thank you so much. I can totally appreciate the, the set aside prayer, um, but I have a really hard time setting aside how I, well, I grew up Catholic. Yeah. Um, so understand like, how not to put priests on and or pastors on a pedestal, um, believing that God unconditionally loves me, although my earthly father puts conditions on his love for me. So do you have suggestions on like just how to get out of the guilt of thinking that, yeah. that I actually can come up with my own conception of who God is and, yeah. and how he, um, how to relate with him. Thank yeah. you. Well, it's a really good question. My gosh, you guys are so thoughtful. Um, I'm going to challenge you on even the way you just started, though. And you said something about, I appreciate your set aside prayer. And how can I set aside? The whole point of the set aside prayer is you can't. Because you're not asking God to give you the grace to set it aside. You're asking God to intervene and set it aside. Whoa. <laughs> well, you see, I can, be, I can be that subtle because when I first got it in 1994, the prayer I wrote, and it's on cards I produced for people to use, it said, God, please help me set aside. And after about five years of meditation, I go, Oh my God, I'm still holding control or the delusion of it. And that's when I changed it to God, please come, come and do it for me. I can't do it. I can't even see what to do. Thank you. <laughs> well, what a great way to bring us to conclusion because that's how we started and we've come full circle. That is just wonderful. Thank you for that question. Thank you so much for the answer. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Great. All right. Um, this is wonderful. The retreat center has been very generous. They, I'm sure, were scheduled till one, although they've been exposed to me enough now that they know that <laughs> they're going to be hijacked for a little overtime. And uh, let's just pray the serenity prayer. Oh, hell, you know what? I have the prayer here of, uh, let's try this the prayer of St. Francis. Let's pray the prayer of St. Francis. I'm, I'm assuming you're all on mute. Let's stay on mute so we don't have too much cacophony, but we'll pray it together. The prayer of St. Francis, which is about turning, which is about process, which is about process. Listen to the promises. I want to be a channel 
a channel of light, a channel of grace, a channel of power. Please join me together. Lord, make me a channel of your peace that where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. It's interesting um, in the book, The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle has a line, the secret to life. Pretty ominous. The secret to life. Get a new fresh highlighter. The secret to life is to die before you die and realize there is no death. That's the process of 12-step spirituality, is the death of the false self so we can be reborn. And that's what step three is all about, is the introduction to that kind of transformation, that kind of metamorphosis to stay with the metaphor of real transformation and the butterfly. So thanks very much, everybody, for attending and participating. And my God, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs>